Welcome back, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, our Cinemaniacs, to another episode of Den of Sins uh, with Devin and James. Uh, hey, we, uh, hey, Devin, how are you doing during this? For here, in where I'm at in San Antonio, it's actually cooling down, but it's still a relatively warm day in, in October. But how are you doing today? Uh, well, <laughs> funny you should say we're getting heat advisories uh, here in Orange County. And uh, <laughs> thanks to having slightly more than a sniffle and a cough this weekend, I am quarantined to my bedroom awaiting results on something that I have a feeling will be negative, but Let's taking hope. every precaution as we all should. But I, I can say that being in this room for five days so far in this heat is not making me feel any better. And my poor, my poor wife is doing everything because we're keeping my stepdaughter in her room this whole time too to, to keep everybody safe. So my wife is having to cook, clean. Uh, hey, can you grab this for me? Can you give me a cup of water? She's found <laughs> that helping with homework is particularly hard when he's not in the same room. So uh, shout out to my wife for doing such a fantastic job of taking care of her family. Absolutely. Yeah, that's the thing is like people don't even think about, but when, uh, you know, that's how like the, if you're doing it responsibly and doing it smartly, you need stuff isolate. And that includes being isolated from your own family sometimes. And not only is that a, a stress on the person who, who you know, might be going through COVID, um, but also on the family and the extra responsibilities and stuff. So it's, again, it's something to consider, uh, ladies and gentlemen, about being responsible, being smart, being careful and being healthy, making the right decisions. Um, so definitely. I'm very excited about this week. Uh, I feel like this one definitely shouldn't be a two or three parter. Uh, it should well, be. It very well could have been had we planned it that way because there's a yeah. lot to unpack here. Over a hundred films that he's been in. Ladies and gentlemen, to this week's episode, we are going to talk about the films. Uh, I think we're going to talk about specifically the most memorable, as far as I'm concerned, the most memorable performances of one Willem Dafoe. Now, Devin, I do want to preface this by saying as often uh, as unprepared as I am on this podcast, I, this week I was like, you know, I want to revisit a lot of the films of his I love that I'm really, you know, a fan of. And so I'm, it's really fresh in the mind and also revisit or excuse me, uh, visit, you know, do have some first time viewings of some of his films I've been meaning to get to. Uh, but unfortunately, the best laid plans of men uh, this week has been a total shit show. Uh, it's been super chaotic uh, for multiple, multiple uh a multitude, excuse me, of reasons uh, that I won't get into in the podcast. But yeah, just my whole week, you know, my week prep for this podcast sort of went out the door and things that kind of needed more of my attention priority wise. Uh, but I am really excited, you know, even just sort of uh, mentally compiling the movies I wanted to talk about. Kept going, oh yeah, what about this movie? This movie. But again, <laughs> you know, he's a prolific actor and he's been acting for a long time and he's been in a lot of very important films and very like memorable films. So I'm excited to talk about it. So uh, um, do you have any specific... Before before we go into it, uh, Devin, do you have any specific, you know, sort of relationship with this actor or sort of anything that sort of makes this actor really interesting to you? I've just always loved him. I've loved his face. I've known his face longer than I've known his name. Uh, although I was pretty yeah. well acquainted with his name early on too, uh, which for anyone out there who's not in the loop, which I think most of us are at this point, it is Willem. Defoe, not William Defoe. There was actually even a bit about this on uh, this weekend's Family Guy. <laughs> Joe kept on calling him William Defoe, and it was driving everybody crazy. <laughs> Funny enough, I did learn this week that his real name is William Defoe. William. That's right. <laughs> he started to go by Willem in college, uh, which is yeah. uh, the Dutch pronunciation of his name. I believe, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, as a way of setting himself apart as if he did not know exactly. about his own cheekbones. But <laughs> uh, exactly. I, I do have a personal story about Willem Dafoe, though, that I'll, I'll go into real quick here. Let's hear it. Well, everybody knows at this point, I like to brag about the movie theater I worked at in New York City. 
everybody that worked there was an artist of some kind. Most of us in the visual arts. There was a guy named Daniel who was one of the actors who worked there. And Daniel was a little bit older than me. He's younger than me at my age now, but older than me at the time. He had grown up in New York City and therefore had worked on stage with a lot of really great names that weren't great names yet. And every now and again, one of his old buddies would come into the theater and he would introduce me to them. And I would get to have this like two second interaction with like an up close personal interaction where I get to see these amazing people kind of bro down with somebody I knew. He's uh, just to give you a, a quick lineup. There was uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. I got to meet this way and uh, incredible uh, Joe Latruglio from the state and Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Sam Rockwell. Yep. And then one day yep. I'm sitting in the theater and I see, and I see Willem Dafoe walk in and I'm standing next to Daniel and I'm, my eyes are on Dafoe and he turns our direction and his eyes light up when he sees Daniel. And I instantly know, oh fuck, in about 10 seconds, I'm going to meet Willem Dafoe. And he walks straight over to us, uh, gives Daniel a big hug, gives that huge Willem Dafoe smile that almost a landed smile. him the part of the Joker. And, mm-hmm. uh, and Daniel says, this is my buddy, Devin. He's a writer. And I extend my hand to shake and Willem Dafoe bats it away and gives me a giant bear hug. And, oh. and uh, then he went on to watch his movie. They, they talked for about 30 seconds, but you know, he went on to watch his movie. But my one experience with Willem Dafoe was him giving me a hug. And I thought that was the coolest thing. It kind of told dude, me everything that, I needed to know about the dude. Well, you know, first off, that's incredible. And I'm, I'm unbelievably jealous. You know, Willem Dafoe, we'll get into it, but Willem Dafoe has been in my life for a long time, <laughs> as far as the presence and in, in my uh, film watching and my film fandom. But one thing I have to say about Willem Dafoe, just as obviously, you know, I don't know him in person. No, you can never really, you know, and can you ever really know somebody if you want to get philosophical with it? But, you know, I've seen countless interviews with him, countless talks with him. And one thing I love about Willem Dafoe is that he is obviously very idiosyncratic as far as there's these few actors, the John Malkoviches, the, you know, the Christopher Walkins, these guys who are just, they have their own aura about them, their own presence, their own look or whatever. But many of them who worked with Willem Dafoe, actually. Exactly. Yeah, exactly as I'm saying that. Did. Yeah. He just seems like such a very like considerate, like down to earth, but also very intelligent, very honest, but like very, truly like artistic soul. Like the, his rationales for taking things aren't, you know, on one hand, they aren't the pretentiousness that you see from some other actors, even though you can tell he definitely is a very articulate mind. He, he's very, he's an artistic soul. I do think at the end of the day, like, I think he's an artist, but he's just very weirdly, he combines that with being very approachable down to earth and very honest. Like he, he's very quick to even in interviews to admit his own failings and his own like, so just as a person, he's always, I've always been drawn to him because his spirit doesn't necessarily match his face or at least, yeah. you know, it, I feel like one thing that with Willem Dafoe... It matches that, that smile. That smile is yes. actually very kind unless he's playing a villain. Well, but here's the thing, though, and this is kind of goes into what... I think his face with age has actually softened because when he was younger, his face was more hard lines and the youth of his face made him look more sinister. Sometimes the guys with age, with more character in their face, sometimes they can look a little bit more ominous. Uh, you know, I'm thinking of guys like Mickey Rourke, although that's not necessarily all age either. But, uh, <laughs> but with Willem Dafoe, I feel like age has softened a little bit, especially like his early films. He had such a sinister look, even when he wasn't playing sinister characters. It's just the shape of his brow, the shape of his mouth, those very deep, weird cheekbones of his. You know, he he seems like a truly gentle soul, despite 
the films that he's kind of most known for, really. But yeah, I'm really excited to get into it. We want to pontificate too much, but let's get let's get started, Devin. Uh, let's. Uh, I'll, I know you wanted to talk about one of his films first. I, I think we can kind of jump around a little bit in terms of the uh, lineage of this, but starting at the beginning is always a good idea. Sure. And right at the beginning, Willem Dafoe had two movies in which he co-starred with lots of leather and motorcycles. That's right. And uh, I'm going to take one, you'll take the other. I am going to start this off with Catherine Bigelow's directorial debut, The Loveless, which, uh, have you ever seen The Loveless? Yeah, in fact, I I, I thought I was telling you, uh, it's on the Criterion Network channel. I've always wanted to see it um, because I'm so familiar with his other one we'll talk about. But I just just happened to watch it. I think even before we decided to do this podcast, my wife and I were watching it on the Criterion channel, which we pay annually for. And it was pretty fresh in my mind. I just saw it not that long ago. It's a really interesting film. It's it's very much The Wild Ones with Marlon Brando. Uh, redone in a yeah. 80s sort of way. Uh, it doesn't take place in the 80s. It takes place, I think, in the 50s. It could be early 60s. It's hard to tell when it comes to uh, leather and motorcycles. I think it's like 61 or something. Yeah, he plays a tough... They never really fully say that he's the leader of the gang, but you get kind of a feeling that he's the leader of the gang. Uh, and he just rides into this small town and has these great lines, like uh, sitting at a diner getting his coffee filled up, and he just looks at the waitress and says... Anybody live around here? That's right. <laughs> that's actually, honestly, that's even that op- that scene when he's talking to the waitress is sort of, I think it's one of the more memorable scenes. And I think it really just says everything about the movie right there. It like sets it up what yeah. the spirit of the movie is right away. So that, that particularly is one of my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's a good movie. I don't feel there's not much of a reason to dwell on it too long because it is such a simple story. Yes, but if you are a fan of cinematic nostalgia, and in particular, if you were a rockabilly person, uh, there are a lot of rockabilly people out there. This is a movie you have to see because the rockabilly soundtrack uh, is yes. very authentic. It's a mix of new material and classic rockabilly. And, oh God, maybe you'll remember his name. There's, uh, the His co-writer on on in the motorcycle gang uh is actually a rockabilly musician and this was his last film uh he, he didn't pass away as far as i know he's still alive and focusing on his music but he um, didn't he, yeah stopped acting but he he played a major role in this and was not bad in fact he was pretty good but willem dafoe clearly comes across as the star he did have a very small part in heaven's gate which is technically his first movie and he got fired off that's of right it. Uh, That's right. <laughs> and then ironically came back about 20, 25 years later and narrated the documentary about the mess that was Heaven's Gate. Uh, <laughs> That's funny because I've seen Heaven's Gate. I think I've seen the two major cuts, the TV cut, the much longer cut, and then the theatrical cut. But I remember when I was reviewing this, I was like, wait, Willem Dafoe was in Heaven's Gate? I don't remember that. <laughs> and then he did have a pretty small part, small part although he's, he, his character does have a name. Um, but yeah, I will say that I, I enjoyed Loveless. It's very much, it feels like a European film to me. I think it's the pacing, the sort of hazy quality to it. The fact that, like I said, it's not, there's not a really a story. It's not, no. it's more, and I, fact, I will say right away. I was just going interject, to interject. It doesn't have much of a story. And actually the only time the film really becomes flawed is when it tries to pretend that it has one. Yes. There, there <laughs> is a subplot involving suicide that is super corny and they were yes. they're trying they aren't disrespectful to the subject they're just giving it far too much weight for this character to have had an effect on the other character yes abs- well said yes but the one thing i, wa- I was going to say is it right from the get-go you know willem dafoe had such a presence you know again phys- like he doesn't even need to say a word and he's going to have presence because he's so peculiar looking and so striking looking but 
just his whole vibe like is very believable but it's also very unique and you definitely can't take your eyes off of him and even in this role like he said he's not especially in the first part he's not like some explosive especially considering the roles he would go on to play later his character is a little bit more cool or like you know like he just seems dangerous like and it's and it's a very natural like kind of dangerous sort of similar to although not in the i mean completely in a different way, but it's, it's like it, to live and die in LA, which I don't know if you want to talk about, but he just, he just has this presence where you're like, he seems like he could explode any minute or just, you know, you don't want to fuck with Willem Dafoe. But um, exactly. but yeah, it's a good, it's a good movie. It's a, I think it's a strong, solid directorial debut with uh, Laura Dern and uh, Monty Montgomery. Catherine Bigelow and Monty Montgomery. What, who did I say? Laura Dern. Oh, Laura Dern. She uh, sorry. It, she's on my Absolutely. mind. Yes. Yes. Yeah. She is on my mind, but uh, yeah. Uh, Catherine Bigelow. But yeah. So, that's a you know good way to start right kind of like at the beginning uh, obviously you've set this up so i can talk about a movie that's very important to me a movie i talk about every chance i can can get but that is streets of fire i'll tell a little bit of backstory so that was a movie again i did grow up with my mom was a fan of it and it's god the, the vibe is of that movie is so weird because it's supposed to take place post-world war ii but it's there's so much like 80s-ness to it like all of the music is this weird 80s version of like doo-wop or 80s version of of soul music like it's this weird kind of it's all got a weird vibe but which, which was I, I really like about it and i think you know i always thought michael pear was destined for bigger things first off i think he's one of the like you know uh, i'm i'm very uh comfortable in my uh heterosexuality but he's one of the most beautiful i think he's one of the most handsome men in cinematic history i even remember thinking as a kid i'm like that i want to look like that guy but i also thought he was a pretty good actor and you know he just he had a good start with a few films that and eddie and the cruisers but he ended up sort of becoming more of a b actor but i, I thought he was really great in this and um, i think he was kind of uh, i don't don't quote me on this necessarily which is a funny thing to say in a podcast but <laughs> i i get the feeling that he was a little bit of a dick and maybe that's what lost him some roles he seems in interviews about that. this movie specifically about streets of fire like he had beef with rick moranis which is the only thing I, there's only one human being that could ever have beef with rick moranis and that is <laughs> michael pair apparently and he made it sound like it was... Well, and that guy like, in New York recently, too, but... Yeah, yeah true. But <laughs> I, I, I think if that dude knew who he was hitting, he probably would have felt bad. Uh, I would but, hope so. <laughs> By the way, too, can I just say, I could have brought this up before uh, uh, in other places, but I know this is a podcast about, we're doing this episode about Willem Dafoe, but I love that movie, and I love Rick Moranis' performance in that movie because he's playing so against type of the kind of characters he normally plays, and he's so fucking good at it. I, again, I think the performance is all around. I'm forgetting the name of the actress... But she basically plays like this sort of female. The best. She's friend? like this ex. Yes, like this sort of. Amy uh, Madigan, I believe, is her name. Yeah, I think you're correct. Yeah, and, and you know, I, 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 the, this, the, you know, the brunette from uh, Too Close for Comfort. <laughs> uh, <laughs> she's uh, had a, Uncle Buck's girlfriend. Uncle Buck's girlfriend. That's right. Yes, like I said, she. And this, she's very like asex or not asexual that's not the right term she's very androgynous and stuff and very but she's she's just such an interesting character and she's played so well the part was written for a man actually it was supposed to be (sighs) see i didn't uh, know that in rumor anyways it's supposed to be edward james almost but uh oh interesting she auditioned for another part in the movie and her and walter hill hit it off and she's like look i i can play this part if you just rewrite him i can play this part and he had enough faith in her and he, he went for it. And it was a good choice. Very good choice. Yeah, no, and again, very unique, very unique decision. So but let's talk about Raven Shattuck. In the in the <laughs> pantheon of I will give you some backstory of how important not only this movie, but specifically Willem Dafoe in this movie is. And Devin, I think you already know this, but in the early two thousands, me and my twin brother made our first self published comic. It kind of like 
uh, rock and roll superhero, very much influenced by like early Stones, early Who kind of a mod, early rock and roll superhero kind of guy. Interesting story, but we'll go into all of it. My twin brother, uh, who who really was sort of, he, he sort of, it was his story to tell in this, in our collaboration. He ended up drawing the, the villain in the, in the comic and the name of the character was the Big Bad Wolf. And I looked at it, and even though he doesn't necessarily look exactly like, like you know, I immediately could tell him like, this dude is based off of Raven Shattuck, isn't he? And yeah, and like, you know, in the comic, he's a much more like thicker, almost werewolf type of character, but I read that comic and I never put it together, but I'm seeing it in my head now and I don't know how I didn't put that together. (laughs) Yeah, we we were both like, again, he's just everything, like, it's such a weird movie. The thing is, the vibe of the movie, it's completely its own. But Raven Shack is this larger than life character like it's a rockabilly kind of vibe he's like playing this like 60s motorcycle guy but he wears like vinyl fucking overalls with no shirt on and he has this the craziest swoop ever like his ducktail and his like little it's one of the best his mouth in movie history absolutely couldn't i agree more but it just it, the whole movie is so and it's got lee ving from the band fear who also went to do some other acting but i remember uh you know uh being very afraid of the band fear when i was a kid one of the early punk uh new york punk bands and uh i don't know if they're actually new york maybe they might have been california i actually shouldn't even say that but anyways an early punk band fear anyways they're, they're a really you know interesting band and but i mean like lee ving is in it he plays one of he basically pl- actually plays i think raven shellick's sort of right-hand man but but he steals the whole movie. Every time he's on screen, he steals the whole movie. And I thought, that, like, growing up, I just thought that was something that me and my twin brother felt. Like, we were such a fan of the movie and specifically his performance. But as I've grown up and talked about people who've seen the movie, the very first thing they always say is, dude, Raven Shack, on the phone, the movie's so... And it's become sort of a thing that a linchpin when I meet somebody of like mind and we connect on that, it's like a real bond, but it's a very memorable movie. Like I said, I don't think it's one of, you know, he's gone, he's made such at this point, so many, so many memorable movies and very beloved movies. Some of, some of those not, I'm not a fan of, but, but I think this one gets lost in the shuffle, but the fans of it are diehard fans of this movie. And uh, you're absolutely right on all those points, but I, I did want to bring up director Walter Hill. Uh, this was a dream project for Hill. He initially wanted to do it as a trilogy, but it's underperformance theatrically, of course, made that an impossibility. But he did say, and this is, oh, and first off, if anyone doesn't immediately recognize the name Walter Hill, Walter then, Hill. You, then you don't watch enough movies. <laughs> yes, uh, that's right. Good. <laughs> but uh, he directed Hard Times with Charlie Bronson, 48 Hours with Nolte and Murphy, and The Warriors. The Warriors, one of the best movies ever. <laughs> and in fact, The Warriors, out of all of Hill's films, is probably the best double feature with Streets of Fire. So yes. If you're, if you're a fan of The Warriors, Streets of Fire is, is your next go-to. Uh, but he has spoken about why he wanted to make Streets of Fire in the first place. Uh, he wrote it and directed it. He basically said that he wanted to make a movie that was his idea of what a perfect movie would be when he was a teenager. And I'm going to read this actually straight from the list. This is his exact list of what he thought was cool as a teenager. Custom cars, kissing in the rain, neon, trains in the night, high-speed pursuit, rumbles, rock stars, motorcycles, jokes in tough situations, leather jackets, and questions of honor. And I think that Streets of Fire pretty much nails all of those things. And and yeah, and you know what? That's a good list of cool things, man. I just kind of <laughs> love A few filmmakers have had a chance to do this. Hopefully, I'll be lucky enough someday, too, because I totally get it to try to yep. make a movie for that 13-year-old in their soul. Uh, and this this was Walter Hill's contribution. To, to that and movie. I will say, there's something very 
I think what you think is cool at 13, like right around that age, like right at early teen, when you just sort of discover like what you think is cool rather than what, you know, your parents say is cool or uh, I think that stays with you for life. And I think that's why so many people will sort of, especially artists will sort of at some point in their career kind of want to fulfill those you know, and it's something with Arrested Development myself. I still collect action figures and all sorts of things. Like, uh, I, I definitely relate to that. But also, you can tell, like, the period he grew up in. Uh, we should do a whole episode about Walter Hill because his, his filmography is very interesting. And, and funny because some of the movies, that, like, I would say people of his that aren't, quote, unquote, loved are some of my favorites. Well, we, should, we should definitely revisit Walter Hill. Um, yeah, yeah and one other thing I do want to say, though, about Street Fire is uh, the first the opening the opening sequence is one of the toughest opening sequences in film history when Michael Pear sort of shows up to his sister's diner and sort of uh, saves her from those young toughs or whatever. There's just it's the movie's just dripping with coolness as far as I'm. And, you know, my 13 year old self thought that was super cool. So yes, it's it's very true. I, I actually think one of the main reasons why I mentioned Walter Hill's intentions with this is because the film has a lot of critics. Uh, and I think that most people, if they go in understanding the the spectacles that he was wearing as he directed it, once they get that knowledge of why the movie was made, I think they're going to appreciate the movie much more. I think even a lot of the uh, detractors against the movie would find it hard to argue that certain things are cool to a 13-year-old, and that's why they're in there. Yeah. But, but it took a director with the talent of Walter Hill to make that work. And actually, there's another movie I'll bring up yeah. later where I don't think it works at all. Uh, but... <laughs> Well, we'll, we'll I'm curious to see which one that is. But yeah, no, I, I think it's great. And I think I think it's a good, it's a perfect example of the a completely different role from Loveless. Almost, even though they're visually very similar characters, sort of like head to toe leather, you know, rockabilly kind of character. They're very different. I mean, you know, one is more subdued and a little bit more, portrayed a little bit more honestly, a little bit more, a little more realistically. And then Raven and Shattuck is fucking a cart comic book villain he's a cartoon yeah. like he's as evil and as menacing as any sort of larger than life you know uh, I, uh, cinematic or villainous you know icon um but yeah let's uh let's let's uh let's let's move on <laughs> all right well briefly you mentioned it and i think most people know about this movie but uh just just to give it a shout out to to live and die in la uh yep. was really Worthy of mention primarily because it was his real breakout. Those other films, Loveless was a small film. Uh, Streets of Fire was not particularly successful. But no. <laughs> uh, To Live and Die in L.A. was a huge hit for William Friedkin, uh, director of The Exorcist and The French Connection and Sorcerer. Uh, this was more of a French Connection-y sort of movie with kind of a, not a crooked cop, but a cop that's definitely willing to scrape the underbelly to get his job done. And Willem Dafoe plays the villain in this movie. And he's actually talked about uh, his star turn in this because he's he's mentioned that when he was young, he was young enough in the mo- when the movie came out that he was still, uh, as a young man himself, going to nightclubs. And he says that that was the first time where he started to go to nightclubs and people would come up to him and be like, dude, Rick Masters, uh, because he was such a badass, yeah. <laughs> uh, his character. And I also wanted to say, just because it's something you don't see anymore, this is an action movie where the cops are going after a money counterfeiter. Uh, this guy wasn't trying to dominate the world or destroy the world or whatever. He was just trying to make fake money. And uh, this tough cop was going to stop at nothing to get him. I'd like to go back to a style of movie where the stakes are about on that level. It's still an intriguing story and didn't have to involve the destruction of all of Los Angeles to make it work. Exactly. Exactly. It's not speed or something where it's, you know, it's... Yeah. So it does yeah, have a three-way car more. chase. <laughs> That's right. It does. 
Yeah, it's definitely a film. You know, it's 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 funny because like William Peterson didn't like he didn't really have a big career. Yeah, he had some really pro- high profile parts. Yeah, but, like he and he's Pat, always good. But he was Pat Garrett in Young Guns too. How was that not a star making turn? But yeah, he just never clicked. And, yeah, and I do think he is a little overshadowed by Willem Dafoe in this because I mean, again, it's Willem Dafoe. He's gonna be you can't. You know, like William Peterson is just a relatively, you know, he's like every man, good looking kind of guy. You know, he's cool enough, but Willem Dafoe is fucking Willem Dafoe. He's like a, he's like a, yeah. an alien. So like it's, but yeah, it's, it, I do think it's, a, it, you know, it's William Freakin. It's, it's definitely worth watching. Is it the greatest movie ever? No, but I do think it's definitely worth a watch. And again, I think the performances are great. And I do think specifically Willem Dafoe is great in it too. So absolutely. And it was, uh, it was but almost yeah. Harrison Ford in that Peterson role, uh, which I, I can see why Ford passed on it. Richard Gere and Harrison Ford were both up for it. Spoiler alert, anyone that doesn't want to know the last 15 minutes of To Live and Die in LA, go ahead and uh, fade out now for about the next 10 seconds. Uh, but here's the bottom line. Harrison Ford's not going to do a movie where he gets his face shot off 15 minutes before the movie's done. Uh, That's right. But I applaud Peterson for taking it, and I applaud Freakin for, for taking out Doing his lead it. character that early yeah. In the climax, which was a very freaking move. If you ever studied, freaking, yes, it's a very, very, very freaking move to very graphically <laughs> blow the face off the main mm-hmm. actor before he achieves his goal. One thing I do think it's interesting because it had this sort of I don't know if I mean, I, this is more my impression than anything based in fact, but mid 80s, it I feel like a lot of the movies that came out in like the mid 90s had a very similar vibe to it, uh, especially like the whole you know, the whole like slight noir inspired kind of like stylish action film thing that was happening in the mid 90s i feel like sort of owes a little bit to this there's a lot of you're right i, I know I, to me there it, seems you're like, absolutely right yeah i think there's a similar vibe but uh, but yeah what else Devin? What's, what's the next one that we need to discuss well, i am letting you sort of choose the, <laughs> the chronological uh film choices here well, so. here's the thing we don't want this to be a two-parter so i think we can kind of assume that everyone has already talked about platoon and last temptation of christ uh yes. two great films. great movies people should see it people should stop worrying so much about last temptation of christ it's a philosophical exploration as to what christ would have been like as a man since the bible doesn't go into that part of christ's story yeah. i actually had a very personal story one of my first times as a person as a junior high school kid or not even junior sixth grader seventh grader maybe at this point at sixth or seventh grader um my good my good friend uh, uh from australia nathan speckman and his family very nice people very nice people they loved me and my twin brother um but they're very religious and they went to go pick at that movie and i remember being like why are you gonna pick at a movie like what's the point <laughs> of that did the movie slap your baby like yeah it is a great movie in fact i you know and it's um, scorsese i mean really it's, yeah, it's, wor- exactly. it's worthy of having its own podcast i'm not dissing that or platoon um, yeah no and that, i think platoon again i think i will say though i mean to me just even on your resume i do believe it's the greatest cinema death scene in history it's yeah. also the most over like i mean that's the literally like the most pomp and circumstance a death could ever have on screen, but to a great effect. I mean, I do think it's one of Oliver Stone's best films. I think it's particularly that scene so well done, but you just go down in history being like, I had the best cinema death ever. And I, I, I will go on record as saying, I do think it is the greatest cinema death ever. But yeah, has um, a few of the best cinematic deaths ever. In fact, you know, I was going to say a little bit more about Last Temptation there, but since we're talking about cinema deaths, well, Actually, Last Temptation has also <laughs> one of the most notorious cinema deaths. But, uh, but let's talk about Wild at Heart briefly. Oh, 
Yes, I was gonna. That was so. That was one of the movies. So, as I said at the beginning, like I wanted to kind of rewatch because it's been God probably ten, maybe more years since I've actually seen Wild at Heart. Really? Because that's um, like that's almost know, obviously, a perennial for me. Like I have to visit Bobby Peru like once a year, once every other. And year. And the thing is, I love it. I think one thing with that movie though for me, and as much as I love it, and I will definitely start talking about it in a second, is that I always felt so. My twin brother is a giant David Lynch fan, as you know, Devin, and he yes. actually his I don't know if it was his first tattoo or one of his first tattoos, but he actually has the Wild at Heart. It's from one of the I think it's an Italian poster, but of the heart with a switchblade through it and it says Wild at Heart. So I always sort of felt like I couldn't enjoy that movie as much as Joe because it's a weird it's a weird it, being a twin is very weird. But um but again, it's great and uh let's let's get into it. Let's talk about let's talk about Bobby Prue and his creepy creepiness. <laughs> well, first off, you've got to wade through a whole bunch of uh, Nicolas Cage and Laura Dern and Harry Dean Stanton at the top of their Stanton. games before you even get to Bobby Peru showing up. Bobby Peru yep. is, is very much a side character. What he does yep. has a major influence on the plot as to what happens yeah. to Nicolas Cage's character. Uh, that is a good old... Uh, uh... Don't tell me. Don't tell me. Uh, he's got a very, just not sinner. What is his name? Out to sea. Sailor Ripley. <laughs> Thank you. I was like, it's not a very distinct name, but yes. Yeah. You said it perfectly. He's, he's again, it takes a while in the movie before you it's, even it's get to at him. least an hour into the movie before you even get to Bobby Peru showing up. But he's so gross and just just looking at him makes you want to take a shower. He, he plays it yes. so greasy and he has this, I don't know what it is. It's like a, a it's a prosthetic set of teeth, clearly, but I, it almost looks to me like it's a prosthetic they, set of baby teeth. They are dentures and they are. I mean, you know, it, like David Lynch, in, 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 you know, when he conceived of the script, when he was writing the script based off of the book, you know, he, he, he envisioned them as having these very gross little, little discolored teeth, little baby teeth. Um, there's actually a medical thing for that. Yeah, but basically little tooth nubs. And Willem Dafoe was like, okay, we're just going to do with this makeup or whatever. And he's like, no, man, you got to get some dentures. He's like, oh, okay, interesting. That's not where I thought this was going. But uh, but again, says so much about the... One thing about David Lynch is that, man, he knows how to create... A, like, he has a very distinct vision and he knows how to make a fully formed idea. Even though sometimes his ideas are so far off the wall or so, like, like hard to decipher, they're fully realized. And I think, I think Willem Dafoe... Uh, has gone on record as saying like that was one thing he enjoyed working with David Lynch is because down to the costume, it was a thing of like, yeah, here's what I want you to do. And, you know, but because it was so fully realized, Willem Dafoe was like, oh, this kind of frees me up. And, you know, even how the teeth kind of, you know, in the way he had to open his mouth, like his, his, it forced his mouth to sort of always be open in this weird sort of like lip snarl. And that he, how that informed yeah, how sleazy the character became. That's a good yeah, basically a snarl, but, uh, he's but just, yeah, it's, he's gross. He's, there's a scene. <laughs> it's actually a, a funny story. There's a scene where uh, he is alone in a hotel room with Laura Dern, and it's a very intense scene. You you would not want to be in a, alone in a room with Bobby Peru, especially if you're a woman. And he's getting all creepy on her, and then announces, "I got to go to the bathroom." And he turns around, and starts peeing in the bathroom with the door open it, as like a form of kind of intimidation. Yeah. Uh, Willem Dafoe found out after he did that, that was an impro- improvisation on the set. And he found out after that, that it was just a prop toilet. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I have a real quick story. I, I do want to share and it, It's about a placentation of Christ and, and something that Willem Dafoe in certain circles is very well known for. Just want to tell it real quick. So I don't know if you're aware of this, Devin, but uh, Willem Dafoe is pretty well known for having a, um, an impressive feature. We'll say <laughs> yes. Uh, I, I was going to mention this in another 
Yeah. So, well, there's a fine of, you know, this story already. You, I mean, you seem to be very aware of these uh, backstage stories, but you know, he's, he, he's very well endowed and on the set of last temptation, when he's actually getting crucified, his, uh, his unit came out of his little Jesus-y rap. And, um, Scorsese, you know, told a PA like, Hey, you need to get somebody to put that back in. And uh, the PA or the grip, whoever was like, yeah, I, don't, I think you need to call animal control for that. <laughs> But the, an animal ran, the, the animal wrangler for that, uh, basically referring to his giant man hog. But anyways, That's there's crazy. actually a video of him naked dancing, which is one of the creepiest things I've ever seen, like a young Defoe dancing this sort of weird interpretive hippie dance thing, fully nude, and it, it's very alarming. <laughs> anyway. Well, he did a lot of experimental theater, uh, the Wooster, yes. uh, the Wooster, Wooster Theater in New York, in New York. Uh, that he was very involved with for decades. Uh, that was actually where he got his start with experimental theater, uh, just off Broadway. I'm going to backtrack just a little bit. Like I said, we were going to go a little bit out of sequence here, I think. I just want to mention Mississippi Burning because I think it's such a fantastic movie. But I also think that it is something that needs, it needs to be seen, but it needs to be seen with 2020 eyes. I basically, I think this is a race movie for white people. Yeah. <laughs> Have you ever well, seen? Well, you know, a lot of race movies, a lot of race movies are for, especially, you know, uh, 80s, 90s and 2000s are, are for white people. So. Yes, this is definitely a white man's burden story. Uh, all these people are yes. suffering and God, does it make Willem Dafoe suffer that all these people are suffering? Yes. Uh, <laughs> But it's still such a great movie made by the recently late great Alan Parker. And I want to mention it largely because of Gene Hackman. And I thought that Willem Dafoe had such a great chemistry with Gene Hackman. And Hackman is just a powerhouse through it. I I think in the the storyline, they give it a a horrible plot flaw, which is to imply that there's any kind of a love affair between Gene Hackman's character and Francis McDormand's character. I think that was way out of line. I think it cheapens the whole movie, uh, much like the same way that I, I felt that the love affair between Jamie Lee Curtis and Clancy Brown cheapened Blue Steel right there at the end. It just reeked of the studio wanted to have a love interest. So if you can forgive it that, uh, it still is a very passionate, very intense movie. It's not based on a true story, but it's inspired by a true story. And in a funny kind of way, like by the end, it almost becomes a canon film with its <laughs> with its action sequences. <laughs> action, uh, yeah. But if you want to see some some uh, racist hillbillies get the shit kicked yeah. out of them and, That's and right. uh, have their stuff blown up, then by all means, check out Mississippi Burning. You could do a lot worse. Great performances. Yeah. And uh, again, very like it speaks to the versatility even at this point of Willem Dafoe because he's it was the first he's playing a very like thing. very straight man to Gene Hackman sort of loose cannony kind of more like yeah I will say like that movie really I saw that movie in school elementary school or early junior high and it really fucked me up in fact I think it, it informed my own sense of empathy and things of like like you said even though it is it's very much the white man's burden you know it's made to make white audiences feel better about themselves being hey I'm not you know I'm not that racist <laughs> yeah it's still a great movie and it like I said it, it enraged me as a kid I had even trouble watching and then you know like there's they they uh, they give you that audience relief at the end of like the release of watching it then you know some races get some come up it's you know even if it's that should sometimes only found in cinema but yeah it's I think his you know he's it's very much a quiet you know it's an honest man trying to do an honest job and you know be rational in a situation that's you know a little irrational but and again per place perfectly with with gene hackman but yeah, yeah i think it's again to go from bobby peru 
like a, you know, not you know, not saying that they were filmed, but I'm just saying, saying like it speaks to they were within two know, years of uh, each other. The, with yeah. Jesus in between, um, oddly enough, with Jesus in between. That's right. I do want to say this real quick though, too. Is like for the longest time, I, you know, I sort of had this thing like the there's like the trio of definitive David Lynch villains, and you have like Frank Booth, you have like the Mystery Man, which so let's talk about Robert Blake. But even though <laughs> say what, obviously Blake. William Blake or Robert. Robert Blake is, you know, a terrible human being in, in real life. As you know, as we talk, we know. talk about a lot of horrible human beings on this yes. show. We, 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 but one we of the creepiest performances and characters, in, yeah, exactly, just knowledge that he's a murdering scumbag. But, um, but again, and I think Bobby Prue is the third man in that in that little trio of cinematic. Because David Lynch has had other cinematic villains, but I think Frank Booth, Bobby Prue, and the Mystery Man are sort of like that, that's the trifecta. They're so memorable the trifecta of super creepy David Lynch villains, but yeah. yeah and, and honestly, I, I give double kudos to Defoe because in the case of Frank Booth, he's very clearly the antagonist of Blue Velvet as opposed to Bobby Peru, who's actually a side character, but managed to be so bad that he feels like he's the entire movie's villain. Well, and, and you know, like you said, the there is... villain is probably, what would you say the villain in Wild at Heart is? Diane Ladd? Diane Ladd, yeah. Well, yes, because even like, you know, she sets up the whole story and and she's you know fucking worst mother of the year word but um but the thing that i like about bobby Pruitt though is like he got like he's very vital to what ends up happening and you know and again he's very he's he may not be like the major heavy in the movie as you said that i mean that's you're dead on right with that but but he's he is one of the most slimy villains and most memorable again even if somebody says like movie villains his Bobby Proust, just his ugly face, especially when he's got the ski mask on, like his face just pops into my head. So, and again, but poor, poor Willem Dafoe is a, has had to fight that stereotype though. You know, even without the, the greasy skin and the little creepy pedo mustache and the, the baby gums or the baby teeth. Uh, he's just, you know, he's been typecast as a villain a lot. So, he certainly which was. less and less these days. Yeah, it's coming around. And I think it actually does have to do with your very astute observation that the more stony his face gets, it actually looks kinder yeah he's it's he's probably a testament to himself i think it's because the stoniness of his face reflects laugh lines yeah that might be true yes that's maybe true and again if you ever see him in an interview he is a very gregarious smiley guy but uh you know he's very funny and uh you know uh vanity fair i think it is they put out these I don't know if they're exclusively to YouTube. I watch them on YouTube, but they do these full in-depth videos. Yes. Yeah. Uh, They're like half hour videos of uh, major actors and character actors talking about their own films themselves. And there's a really great one on Willem Dafoe that everyone should check out. I've Um, seen it. Yeah. In fact, I've seen all of those. I think sometimes though, it pisses me off that their film selection, because they'll always choose some movie in there. I'm like, that movie's terrible. Why are you making him talk about that? And not (laughs) like in this case, no, why not Streets of Fire? But I get it. If it's a more popular movie or more. I I definitely get it. And uh, another thing I'm just going to throw out there, we don't necessarily need to get into it because it's nothing but a cameo, but I love that he has a cameo in Crybaby by John Waters, just because I love John Waters. And I think it's same hundred percent. I think it's cool that uh, John Waters loves Willem Dafoe. And <laughs> this before this becomes the Bobby Peru show, uh, Willem Dafoe has actually said that he wore his mustache in uh, Wild at Heart as a tribute to. Uh, uh, I John almost Waters made the reference. Yeah, yeah. His creepy little pedo mustache. Ah, <laughs> uh, dude, let's, John John Waters is a fucking dude. He's he's a hero. He's a hero to the people. He is. Before we get into like two-parter land like we've been doing lately, I'm just going to breeze through some name drops of of 90s movies. Because I actually think his, Willem Dafoe's career 
which obviously is far from over, but I think his highlights are really the 80s and post-2000. So I'm just going to breeze through a few names of 90s movies. Uh, some sure. of them are very big, but they aren't movies that make of Willem Dafoe. Uh, a lot of people are big fans of White Sands. I frankly haven't seen it with Mickey Rourke. I don't know if you've I seen it seen or either. if that's... Okay. I have not. Uh, Clear and Present Danger with uh, Harrison Ford. The English Patient uh, won Best Picture, and I really couldn't care because that year I was into a different kind of indie film. Speed 2 Cruise Control. I don't know who talked yeah. about doing that. Uh, <laughs> Affliction, which again, I also haven't seen, but I this one I actually really need to see. It's You've never movie. seen Affliction? I have never gotten around to seeing Affliction. If you want to talk about Affliction, I hand it entirely to you. Because what a I cast, was, what a I director. Was, dude, I will say this about Affliction is that movie... Who I, I honestly can't even talk about Willem Dafoe in that movie because the two main performances of Nick Nolte and, and uh, James Coburn, and again, it's got Sissy Spacek, one of my, probably my favorite actors of all time, and directed by Paul Schrader, but the two performances, is Nick Nolte is a, he is a powerhouse in that movie. There's a scene in that movie, and it will go down, I will never forget as long as I live, I saw this movie in the theater, where, you know, he's basically... Uh, for those that haven't seen it, Nick Nolte basically plays his. He's uh, he lives in this very small town, and he's like their like sheriff or the you know head of their police department. He's a police officer, and James Coburn basically plays his unbelievably abusive and terrible father who just belittles him and degrades him, and he's like this this awful human being. And the whole the thing is that you know James Coburn is a you know is a terrible alcoholic, and uh, that's the affliction of the title, right? Exactly. Yes. Uh, and then, you know, there's this whole like hunting accident thing that, you know, there's this, I mean, it's, it's not a subplot, it's a plot point, but you know, he's basically uh, trying to solve this um, hunting accident, but you know, it's like rich people or like powerful people are involved in the cover up. But it was, this is a scene where he basically, where Nick Nolte, ter- like he's drink he like drinks all this like whiskey and he, he's basically the whole movie. He's extra cranky because he has had, has this like tooth abscess and his tooth is killing him. And there's just this scene where Nick Nolte pulls out his own tooth and, and, and like the blood starts pouring out of his, like starts dripping out of his mouth. And like, you see a real tear, tear of like pain slash frustration slash anger sort of go down Nick Nolte's face. And I remember being fear thinking like it was one of the most powerful things I'd ever seen, but it's a great movie. Willem Dafoe, it plays a likable character. You know, not, you know, it's not, uh, it's not his movie. He's great in it. He's always great in it. But definitely the movie is uh, James Coburn and, and Nick Nolte. Nick, James Coburn well, is he, one of the most hateable characters, but it's so powerful. He but, won, He finally won an Oscar for that movie too. Coburn's a fantastic yeah. actor. Uh, one oh, of those of course, uh, yeah. Oscar wins later in life and uh, thankfully well-deserved. Unlike, you know, yeah. not to speak ill of the dead, but uh, of all the things that I've loved Jack Palance in, I don't think he should have gotten the Oscar for City Slickers, for example. Or, uh, you know, I, I, I was City just thinking about City Slickers. <laughs> but I agree with you. Yeah. Uh, I love Paul Newman. Uh, and I love Martin Scorsese, but Color of Money is not the movie that Paul Newman should have won Best Actor for, or, or no. Pacino in Scent of a Woman. It just every five to ten years, I agree, 100%. They, they, they give out these Oscars for uh, their, their, I call them career Oscars. It was Coburn's turn, and it was actually for a movie that he was very deserving to Oscar for. I, I think before we leave the '90s, I could probably use a spend up an entire podcast talking about how much I despise this movie. Uh, but before we leave the 90s, I think we have to say a word about the Boondock Saints. Yeah, we'll talk about it. <laughs> Can I, let me set this up. Okay. So in the early 80s, Walter Hill made Streets of Fire to satisfy the 13-year-old in his soul 
And the Boondock Saints feels like it's a movie directed by a 13-year-old. Yeah. It is one of the... People love this movie, and we're probably getting people throwing beer cans at the uh, at their Alexa right now listening to this, throwing their headphones on the ground. Uh, but you know what? I Don't I, care. I, I called out <laughs> that they threw their beer cans because they have to be fucking raging alcoholics to love this movie. It's, it's just... We're just Irish. Not even... It, it is well, so, no, because there's an Irish. So bad. There's an Irish. Yes. yes, I wasn't even saying that to make fun of uh, you know. Irish I know where you're Irish going with it. There just there's an Irish pride involved in this movie that is just silly. But anyways, how could anybody have Irish pride in this movie? It makes Irish people look like assholes. Exactly, uh, look like dipshits. But yeah, I, I just there's no consistency. There's no character. This movie is one Willem Dafoe away from being as bad as The Room. Yeah. And and Willem Dafoe, as the one bright spot in the movie, can't even manage to pull off being a full bright spot in the movie because given so little to, to actually do that's decent. For anyone that doesn't know Boondock Saints, this is a rare vigilante movie that James and I hate. That's right. Hate. <laughs> uh, there's a whole movie about this, about the making of this movie called Overnight, that if you can get your hands on it, I think it's on Tubi. That oh, dude, about, is it? Because I've been... I, I thought it was I unavailable only, I went to forever. Actually, yeah, I, I think it's, it's a, on one of the TV. most fascinating documentaries, especially in the in a documentary about like filmmaking and film history. One of the most and one of the most one of the most like deliciously rewarding. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just real quick. I need to go off for a second. So please do. Um, it's not, so at the time this movie came out, uh, I was dating a girl at the time. She's a very nice girl, but we'll leave it there. But she knew I was a big fan because we were all in, in, in the mid to late 90s. We were all Tarantino fans. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. um, but she's like, oh, you like Reservoir Dogs? I saw a movie even better than Reservoir Dogs. I was like, what? She's like, yeah, this movie Boondock Saints. I'm like, oh, okay, I'll, I'll watch it. I've never been more mad at somebody in the... <laughs> I was like, I actually was like... Uh, then the next time we started, I'm like, that's the worst movie I've ever seen. And she's like, what? I'm like, that movie is... So here's what's funny about what you said earlier, Devin, about like fulfilling your thir- uh, your inner 13-year-old. The difference between this and say, uh, as far as I'm concerned, with Seven Next to the Fire is Walter Hill was a capable, intelligent filmmaker who captured the spirit of his 13-year-old self. Boondock Saints is like an actual 13-year-old tried to make a movie, and it's terrible because 13-year-olds shouldn't make movies. The... <laughs> Everything about, it's so, this movie is the the film version of my dad can beat up your dad. Like it's the most, <laughs> there's like, it's so stupid on every level. And Willem Dafoe, who is the highlight of it, even though he he's like, people talked about Gary Oldman being like over the top in The Professional, but even how some people thought it was like, is super over the top and he's rewarding. This is a similar scenario where people, even who maybe didn't like the movie, were like, to the point, well, I, actually, interesting you bring up The Professional. I hadn't thought about it. Sorry to interrupt, but I just want to say, no, no there's another movie that uh, Troy Duffy rips off in this movie. Everything's a rip-off yeah, of yeah. Tarantino and all the other indie films. Yep. I didn't. Put yep. it, I was trying to figure out how Willem Dafoe fit into all that. It's Gary Oldman and The Professional. Okay, continue, but you yep. nailed it. Yeah, and it's Willem Dafoe in this, because of his sheer talent, and I will say, like, they wrote him an interesting enough character because he's, like, this, like, I don't know. He's, like, he's, like, he's openly gay, but he's also this, like, weirdly, like, alpha male yelling at people. It could have been a really interesting gay character if they had not put him in drag for the third act. You, yes. They, uh, Troy Duffy just, he's so incapable of having a full mature thought that he... Even he steps on his own good ideas. But yeah, but he is, I mean, it's worth it seeing it once because I it is such that. a train wreck of a movie. What's that? So I doubt even that. 
Well, I was gonna say it's it, to me it's interesting to see it once just just because of seeing like Willem Dafoe's kind of batshit performance and what he does with it. But I would say it's the only thing that's even remotely redeemable. I, I think Willem Dafoe actually says like he had fun making the movie and he's but I just like dude that movie and I'm sure if dude. There's a weird segment of people who are like super into like, I don't know, like the, people really love Nightmare Before Christmas. And, you know, Nightmare Before Christmas is fine. I, I don't hate Nightmare Before Christmas. But the people who sort of like think that movie deserves more credit than it actually deserves. People like Conor McGregor fans. But that's also kind of the Irish thing. But there's just a certain segment of the population there just really loud and very like aggressively kind of want to get to it let's let's move on it's it's a it's a it's movies and nightmare before christmas is definitely one of them uh where they are cult films but the people that follow it don't think they're in a cult they think they're in a religion well here's the thing is i you know i'm gonna sum it up this is my way there are people who think nightmare before christmas is some like cult movie some like nobody's ever like they're like special because they've heard of this movie meanwhile it's like a very well it's like yeah. come on man like calm yourself it's like people I live who, in anaheim I, like everything becomes nightmare before christmas <laughs> this time of year everybody knows this movie yes get over it that yes it's movie. one of the yes. good movie. yeah it's a fun movie I, I, again i you know i liked it when it first came out you know i like stop motion the music is, is is really enjoyable um but it's just it's become this thing where people think oh liking nightmare before christmas isn't a personality it's not like it's just like smoking weed isn't a personality it's a thing you enjoy but like people have like sort of glommed onto it as like ah i love nightmare before christmas yeah and i like fried chicken like what does that have to do with anything like but um (laughs) but 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 this is one of those movies it's like dudes that think trench coats are cool and you know uh anyway troy the everything you need to know about troy duffy as a human being is the cover of him and his shitty band's record hit their 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 debut album that cover says everything you need to do about this guy and it's not good but anyways now that we've ostracized a segment of our possible audience here let's move on <laughs> well another one that's divisive and i i don't have a lot to say on i, I don't know if you would but uh, he was an american psycho which is uh, another film that people tend to either love or hate i fall more on the appreciative side of it but it's still not something that i rave about again this is the perfect sister movie to boondock saints in fact i guarantee you most people are super psyched about one are super psyched about the other yeah uh, again i do think it's not American... worthy of the hatred uh, that boondock saints no gets, though. by no means but it is a little like I, I okay get I get it. It. with american psycho I, I at least get it yeah exactly i and, don't you enjoy know, it big... i just don't get it it's a it's an interesting movie that has like really good performances and really funny aspects to it the Huey um, lewis stuff know. is hysterical it's yeah <laughs> I, I, um, can, I, I can enjoy that one. I, I've never read the Brett Easton Ellis novel. Um, I've read a few Brett Easton Ellis novels, but his writing never really clicked with me the way he did has done for some some people. But uh, I'd be really curious to actually read the book. But I would too. I love film his history. podcast, but, but he is self-professed a pretentious asshole. Yeah, exactly. But he's fun uh, to listen to. But you know, check out. But his I will podcast. say this: like you know, I will. But yeah, I mean, it's definitely better than Boondock Saints. And but Willem Dafoe, it's another one of those things where Willem Dafoe is fine in it, it but he's not doesn't he's not super memorable because that movie really is i mean it's it's a it's a, almost like a one-man play it's everybody else in the movie is incidental to uh christian bale and his whole you know and then the sort of the movie is this sort of inside this mind man's psychosis or his imagination and you know but anyway, i had uh, to be reminded that he was yes. even in it i had forgotten he was in exactly it. I was looking up the imdb i'm like oh yeah willem dafoe is in american psycho uh but it's, it's right. a christian but yes, bale Curtis, movie through and through uh, and he, he does a yeah. really interesting job of it. Not my favorite performance of his either, but he does a really interesting job. 
it's a deserving breakout movie. But also in 2000, he did a movie called Animal Factory that I don't think people have seen or given enough attention to. Did you ever see Animal Factory? No, and it's funny, as I said, the thing, uh, there's a few I wanted to see. Um, I wanted to see Pasolini. There's like, cause I do like Abel Ferrara, but there's a that few too. that I wanted to see, and, and that was one of them. Uh, it was... Funny enough, uh, I had never seen Animal Factory until gearing up for this, and I and I did see Pasolini gearing up for this. Uh, of the two, I actually prefer Animal Factory. It's the second film directed by Steve Buscemi, and uh, he does a fantastic job directing it. It's a prison movie, kind of near about the same era as Shawshank Redemption a few years later, but kind of this, some similar things going on in terms of the friendship of the men on the inside, except for Red never told Andy that if he came back to prison, he would fuck him. <laughs> uh, a lot of it nice. does come from the fact that Willem Dafoe takes uh, Edward Furlong, who I usually don't like, but is quite good in this, partly because really? he's, playing, he's playing the right role for him. He's playing a rich boy who ends up in prison. So, Interesting. Okay. And he's being told repeatedly. I'll be honest, that was literally one of the main reasons I haven't seen it is because I, I truly dislike Edward Furlong. Same here, but I am going to say don't be deterred by Furlong in this one. He's not the highlight, but he does not mess it up. He does a fine job. He's He's got the right role for him. Um, and it's kind of... Uh, <laughs> Prison rape isn't funny and we need to stop making prison rape jokes because rape isn't funny in prison Correct. or outside of prison or anywhere. Correct. And I urge any any of my brother and sister screenwriters out there, stop writing prison rape. And even more than that, stop writing prison, break, prison rape joke. jokes. All that being said, uh, the prison rapist in this movie is Tom Arnold, which is kind of satisfying to see Tom yeah. Arnold get his comeuppance. <laughs> uh, probably Tom Arnold's best performance uh, outside of True Lies. True, man. Yeah. Um, I think he's uncredited, too, because I remember being surprised that he popped up, and I didn't think I saw his name in the credits. Someone who's definitely credited, very high up, actually, is Danny Trejo. He was an executive producer on this. And Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, and he's it's uh, one of the only sure things I can input. think of. Yeah, Trejo is playing a character in this. He's not playing Machete, you know? He's not playing the badass. He's actually playing just a dude. Uh, a dude in prison, but a dude. And uh, he does a very good job. He's Willem Dafoe's best friend in this. And it's written and, and also features a performance by the late, great Eddie Bunker, who I meant to mention last time when we were talking about Runaway Train, because uh, Trejo and Bunker both appear in Runaway Train. And Bunker and Trejo did time together in San Quentin and in real life. And uh, Bunker was in and out of prison all of his life and uh, decided at one point that he was tired of it. Uh, he found out that he could write in prison. So he started to write books and then he got out of prison and his book started to sell. And then Dustin Hoffman came knocking and one of his books was turned into a movie. And so that led Eddie Bunker to the next logical step, which, well, maybe I should go into acting too. And so he's probably best known as Mr. Blue in Reservoir Dogs. Uh, yeah, exactly. He inspired a lot of Tarantino's writing in general. And you can very much feel this is an Eddie Bunker story if you know anything about him. But I, I wanted to give him an extra shout out in this because he didn't get the shout out for having written Runaway Train from the story by Akira Kurosawa. But a very talented person who often his real life reputation kind of overshadows the talent that he brought out of prison. And he really did straighten up his life, much like Trejo. And it makes sense that they were both friends. And, and I think it's kind of funny that Eddie Bunker uh, ratted out Trejo and saying that Trejo was the prison gossip when they were in together. <laughs> <laughs> 
I love it. Uh, uh, this the one, thing about, the one thing about Eddie Bunker, though, too, is that he has a very similar face to Danny Trejo. Like, almost as like if being in prison... I, shockingly, is hard on hard on the birds, and uh, but they have these both like very like their skin is similar. In fact, Ebunker kind of looks like a white version of Danny Trejo. A little but, bit, a uh, little bit. I can see that. At least, at least to me, like the the facial hair, the the, the sort of pockmarked skin. But and, I love that their brotherhood existed, and that it when they got out of prison yeah. together. Well, I don't know that they got out of prison together, but when they were both out of prison together, both out of prison, uh, they they both worked together multiple times and really supported each other and kept each other's ass out of prison again uh so true redemption story uh i don't know the full details on just how far the shittiness went uh during their prison days uh but they definitely did their their time and came out reformed which you don't hear often enough and is actually i wouldn't say that they're good prison stories but obviously there's a happy ending involved for for eddie bunker and danny trejo eddie bunker is now gone danny trejo sells tacos and they're really good tacos the next that's right I, in next, fact, we was just on, on, a, on a different podcast. I was just saying how I wanted to try some. So anyways, you're saying. <laughs> uh, I was going to mention the next film uh, also in the same year, because suddenly in the 2000s, this is when Defoe got really prolific. And I think we actually saw this movie in the theater together, if I'm not mistaken. Shadow of the Vampire. Yeah, we did. That's right. And I remember not being a huge fan of it when I first saw it, but I really think once I saw it again, I realized I think I was just in a bad mood that day. Uh, you know what? Actually, so I'll be honest, because uh, I was th- I was just sort of revisiting this movie in my head. I think I was expecting something different or something more... I don't know. I just think I was expecting something different. And I think the humor in this is very, not that it's subtle, not that it's subtle at all, but it's, I don't know. I I think, I mean, the perform, both performance, both um, Malkovich as Murnau and Malkovich, 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 Malkovich as Murnau and Defoe as the vampire. Is is his name Max Shrek in it or do they never, I don't remember that. Anyways, because the actor is based Uh... off of me. I can't remember. I, this honestly was on my list to rewatch, but it is nowhere Same. to be found. It is nowhere. Yeah. It's not even on DVD anymore. You cannot find this movie unless you're willing to spend like a minimum of like 30 or 40 bucks. And I don't recall liking it enough not- to want to spend that money. I did like to live and die in LA enough to spend that money though. That is just recently went out of print. I don't know what's going to happen because it's part of the Disney 20th century Fox thing. Uh, Shout factory had put out a to live and die in LA, which if you have a spare hundred bucks, you can pick up. I got the original Fox Blu-ray, uh, which you can still pick up for like 20, 30 bucks on eBay. But yeah, some dude, of these I, I'm grab them kicking myself in the ass. I, I, Yep, I went to, I was like, dude, I never got that Blackula 2-pack from oh, um, Shout Factory. I was like, I oh, I'm, 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 I was like, let me grab that. Oh, it's $120. Oh, no, I guess I'm going to wait on that. So I was like super bummed. I was like, damn, it's already up that high? I didn't realize it had gone up that much. But, uh, but Although I did rewatch both. And, but anyways. Drawing off of um, 20-year-old memories, yeah, though, I, will, I, think, I, I think you nailed it. I think it's a film that, that never quite found itself. It couldn't figure out if it wanted to be funny or if it's a horror movie. It's certainly not a bio film outside of the most meta possible way. Nope. So it yeah. really didn't end up belonging to any of the genres but did include really fantastic performances and, and Nicholas Cage produced it. So it was, it was uh, Bobby Peru and uh, Sailor Ripley. Uh, That's right. Together again, even if not on screen. Yep, exactly. I think, and you know, I think the rumor was that, uh, that Nicholas Cage wanted to actually, like it was, he was developing it with his company for himself to star. And if you actually look at, at Nicholas Cage's face, especially his profile, I was like, Hmm. You actually look way more like Nosferatu <laughs> than Willem Dafoe does. Um, he could have, especially done, like he, the no. 
he definitely could have done it. Cage doesn't get. He, he's already we done about it here. He's already done the, the one of the greatest vampire movies ever with Kiss of the Vampire. So I don't, you know, he, <laughs> I've already seen him play a batshit vampire. So, but I mean, well, the movie is a Willem Dafoe vehicle. It's basically watching Willem Dafoe chew scenery as a very spooky German vampire and basically like say very dark, terrible things and stuff. It, it, again, I, I, I when the movie came out, I wanted to love it. I remember we were all so psyched because again, the premise is so. It's almost like a, like a, you know, like a, something Bruce Campbell would start on where it's like, so we're going to make a movie about like a biopic about uh, the film Nosferatu, the making Nosferatu, but guess what? Nosferatu was really a vampire. Murno found a real vamp. And it's like, oh, that's, that could be dumb fun, but the movie. It could have been the Hotep. Uh, exactly. Sort of, sort of style, yeah. which. Uh, Some Joe R. Lansdale slash Don Cossarelli. Uh, but, but yeah, I mean, but it's, it's, it, I do think it's, interesting just because again i think the makeup effects were great i think he's wonderful is per like he's He's so genuinely creepy yeah exactly and he deserved it but the rest of the movie i don't know i again same as you i'm like i need to rewatch that because i don't know if it was just sort of like i had my expectations too high or or maybe i was just expecting something different i do remember being like this is the movie i thought it was going to be but um but he's great in it and it's you know even rewatching some highlights of defoe's performances when that comes up i am drawn to it because one i like Nosferatu, I like vampires, I like horror. And I, I think it's an interesting performance, and I think the look of it, they nailed the look. They did nail the look. I'm going to go a little out of lineage here just, just for a second, because there is another connection between Cage and Defoe. Uh, it's a more recent movie. In fact, it was uh, 2016, so it's not that old, but it was called Dog Eat Dog. Did you see Dog Eat Dog? No. There, again, there's a short list that was one of them. Although I remember, like, I remember when it came out, I remember being like, I didn't, it didn't look super great. So I don't know. You know, it, I had the same experience, but uh, as luck would have it, I've had five days to sit around in my bedroom. And so I popped on Dog Eat Dog. I can't remember which channel it was on. It was streaming somewhere. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, it's a Paul Schrader movie. So that is what ultimately sold me on it. I'm like, uh, Cajun to phone and direct the video thing could really go either way, but it's Paul Schrader. So it's worth a shot. Schrader being uh, one of the exactly. people that worked with Defoe quite a bit. Schrader and uh, Abel Ferrara worked yes. with uh, Defoe quite a lot right now. In fact, any time a Defoe movie comes out, there's probably a 50-50 shot of it being one of those two directors at this point. But anyway, I did watch Doggy Dog. And the thing is, I'm a giant Schrader fan. and It's, it's fun. It's, actually, it's a lot of fun. If you just sit back and eat some popcorn... You're going to enjoy yourself. Nicolas Cage is at his over-the-top best, uh, you know, playing a gangster. So there's there's a little bit of Cage swagger, you know. He's in a blue <laughs> suit and kind of walking around like his shoulders don't belong to the rest of his body. And you know, <laughs> uh, saying lines that you can tell that Nicolas Cage probably thinks sound real cool, but really <laughs> just sound real Nicolas Cagey. Uh, That's and, right. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Defoe plays a guy that he got out of prison with and... Actually, I think, you know what, now that I think about it, I think this was based on an Eddie Bunker book. Uh, Bunker was dead already in real life, but I think that this script was taken from a book by Eddie Bunker. So it's another story about former prison inmates doing one more gig, uh, but this time they're kidnapping a baby. And uh, I will say that some of the joy in this movie comes from all of these gangsters and hard asses, including Paul Schrader in his first on-screen performance ever as the head gangster that Nicolas Cage works for. All of them are tiptoeing around the fact that they're kidnapping a baby. They're all bad dudes. But every time it comes up, like, okay, guys, we're going to do a kidnapping. We're going to kidnap a baby. I realize that's probably not the coolest. (laughs) (laughs) And And the guy that's even hiring Nicolas Cage to do this job says... 
you know what? It's an infant, man. If the kid was like four years old, I'd say, fuck that. Don't do that. This kid ain't even going to remember. <laughs> I think I need to see this movie. <laughs> the bad guys are constantly talking about like, oh, this is fucked up. Do we do this? And they do it, of course. And it does have that sort of Pulp Fiction-y attention to comedy uh, within a gangster setting. Uh, sometimes the wrong people get shot, that sort of thing. Uh, Defoe is really a creep. Like he's... When you're first introduced to him, he does something that's just absolutely disgusting. And he spends the rest of the movie kind of psychoanalyzing himself like, hey, I did this thing and I feel real shitty and I'm realizing now I think I'm a shitty person. And he's like asking this other thug like, hey, can you kind of help me become a better person? (laughs) The psychology of these characters is fascinating. And so I... Even though very it's not Paul a Schrader, movie, though. yes, very Paul Schrader. I I don't say that this is a great movie, but it is definitely if you're a fan of that genre, you should see this. Doggy Dog is a recommended movie, even if it's not a great movie. I'm gonna lie, yeah. I mean, just even your review is sold it for me, so <laughs> it, I might watch it tonight. It's very tongue in cheek. Yeah, if you do, text me. I, let me know what you think because uh, I know nobody else that's ever seen this or even heard of it. And I would love to have someone to uh, kind of go back and forth, especially about Cage and Defoe's That's characters. Right. Do we even want to get into Spider-Man? Well, say this. I'll say this. As a lifelong comic book fan and uh, Green Goblin you know, fan, I, I, I actually, weirdly enough, I was a giant. I think he's one of the most iconically designed. Fuck Venom. Fuck Carnage. It's all about Green Goblin and Dr. Octopus. Anyways, but uh, it's one of the silliest performances of his career, but in such a glorious way that it's, I mean, I hate their version of the Green Goblin as far as aesthetically and their whole thing, but Willem Dafoe is so great in his over-the-top. Like, he really got it. If any actor really in that movie sort of understood who Sam Raimi was as a filmmaker and sort of went with that vibe, because one second he's menacing and very, like, scary and truly kind of, like, psychotic and frightening. It's, like, kind of, like, comical and a little over-the-top. And, and, again, there's a very high camp thing to the performance. But, it you know, it, it is what it is. It's a Spider-Man movie. I am a big fan of the Raimi Spider-Man movies, but I definitely think Spider-Man 2, his Spider-Man 2, is the best of those films. But, uh, you right. know, Spider-Man, the first Spider-Man isn't a perfect movie, but it's fun, and I think one of the main reasons it is so fun is because Willem Dafoe was so... Uh, and I think visually, like perfect, you know, very interesting casting. Um, I was happy. Like I was happy with his performance. I hated the, I still hate the design. I They're like sort of robo. Design. No, it's ugly and stupid. And, that but flat looking um, face. I, yeah. To point out though, real quick, before we stray too far off of the costume, mm-hmm. I, I'll put this online. I'll, I'll post it as a Facebook post. There is actually uh, effects tests done. I was just about to bring this up. Okay, well then you take, Frightening. It. You take it. Yes. I, well, yeah, I mean, it's... For it's, about an hour uh, afterwards, when I'd close my eyes, I would see the face. Ah. Yeah, no, it's one of the most frightening... Like, so, uh, if you're a fan of the comics, like, you know, the the cinematic version of Green Goblin is not the, the Green Goblin from the comics. In the comics, he's very much an actual kind of goblin with this, like, cre- you know, buggy eyes and this very creepy smile and these big pointed ears and this floppy purple nightcap thing, which I'm a huge fan of, which I, I understand why maybe other people don't. But um, they actually really wanted to go much more like that in the... Sam Raimi wanted to try that and have a very expressive kind of gargoyle-ish, ghoulish, you know, goblin face. And they did these uh, animatronic tests and you can find the footage online and they're fucking terrifying. They're yeah. genuinely creepy and, you know, like it emotes and stuff. But I, I would have, to this day, we I, I'm part of a Facebook group called uh, Super Palookas where we just talk about nerdy 
comic book stuff and specifically the losers of comicdom. But we've talked about multiple times of like things we most like, uh, you know, things we wish would have, we would have actually, you know, transpired in, in comic book cinema history, such as Nicolas Cage actually playing Superman. But one of the most popular is I wish we could have gotten that, test footage version of green goblin because it would have been way creepier but yeah i completely agree uh, i also though i i see their point the fact that i'm into my 40s now and just saw this makeup <laughs> yes. and, and like i said can see it when i close my eyes it was too scary for kids i just think they probably made a good choice as much as i would have preferred yeah. to see that version, no i agree they made a good choice but they made a bad choice to replace it with i i think somewhere yeah, in between would have been the right answer same 100 percent. because they gave him like a flat metallic face and what's ironic about it is that it is Willem Dafoe behind the mask. He performed 90% of his own stunts. The stuntmen could not figure out how to fly that hoverboard thing and Dafoe could because he's a very physical actor. So it's incredibly impressive that it's Dafoe throughout the whole thing. But at the same time, you don't really give a shit because you can't see his face. And what a loss. What a terrible loss to have Willem Dafoe in the costume the whole time. Well, and that's what as a, as a, you know, when he, when he was announced that he was playing the Green Goblin, I think fans across the world we're like oh my god that's perfect he already is the paint him green let's let's go put him in purple pajamas like he his face is so the proportions of that character that you know i feel robbed that we didn't get that performance that we could have gotten so yeah nailed it 100 just to kind of uh link that back to something else because there's actually a denture story to this movie as well as we said in wild at heart he was asked to put on dentures and he didn't think he was going to have to and they <laughs> they made him put on these dentures to make his teeth look all tiny and and grimy and nubby and gross uh so for this sam raimi told uh defoe hey uh we need to have you get your teeth fit for your uh your dentures and DeVoe's like oh this is gonna be great I'm playing the Green Goblin so I'm gonna have some really nasty pointy teeth he's no 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 you're playing a multi-millionaire who would never have your teeth so, <laughs> so DeVoe had I love to that story, yeah. dentures to look like he had more normal teeth in order to play uh, Osborne the character yeah, that becomes very the ego centric yeah like successful you know like trump type yeah no that's i love that story well i don't know if it was on your agenda one movie i do i do really want i mean there's a ton i mean we talk about the florida project which you know was amazing he's fucking yeah, great fantastic now. everyone should see the florida project actually we can leave it and leave it at that but yeah great, i mean oscar nominated but i want to talk about because you talked about schrader i do want to talk about autofocus which yes. i think is a movie that I can rewatch all the time. I think, you know, I think there's a lot of people who sort of not shit on uh, Kinnear, uh, not Kinnear, on, um, <laughs> oh God, Greg, Greg Kinnear. He was, yeah. he was also a, a talk show, right? Was Yeah, uh, yeah he was, uh, Greg Kinnear was uh, Talk Soup. Yes, 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 correct. Okay, good. I was like, I was confusing myself, but Greg Kinnear is great in that movie. He carries the movie as, as Bob Crane, the, the, the real, like a sort of biopic of the, the actor from Hogan's Heroes and the sort of sexual depravity that uh, he ended up, like he was a sex addict before we knew what that was. And But Willem Dafoe is John Carpenter, which I still... He's a real person, but I just always yeah, go. Not to be confused with the Halloween director. I think that's the bottom With line. the famous director. But God, he's so good. And so legitimately creepy. And... Oh, the pathos of it. Because there, there are moments where you actually feel empathy for him. Oh, uh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. He treats him like shit at a certain point. And it's not... 
it does not paint a good picture of Bob Crane either, although it paints a very no. human picture. It, it's very, it deals with sex addiction and yeah. uh, his, and his fame pretty, yes, and all his, kinds of things. His particular, his, the way his sex addiction manifested itself was the early years of videotape before people really had uh, home VCRs and stuff. He was very looped into uh, the technology of having tape and being able to replay it and the idea that he could film his family and all of this. And he's introduced to this world by John Carpenter, who was just a guy who was basically the cable guy hooking up cable at his house who said, Hey, you ever seen this kind of a camera before? Uh, And they, they start to get into these sexual exploits behind his wife's back uh, where they are filming young women coming in to sleep with Hogan from Hogan's Heroes. And I've heard that the real Bob Crane was not quite as key as they portray him this, but I would also expect Bob Crane's family to take that stance, so I don't know whether I'd buy it. Yeah. Although Bob Crane's family, I think, was uh, very uh, active in this film. His son plays a reporter in the movie, so uh, it's not as if it's completely unauthorized. Uh, and, And as a biopic, it comes from this era of biopics it still kind of exists. In fact, it very much exists today. It's the Scott Alexander and Larry Karajowski uh, biopic. It's these two writers, and they're almost the only two writers I can think of. They're a team where their stamp is so pressed upon the films that they write that they have a style that I can attribute to them as much as any of the directors that they've worked, even though they don't direct their own work. But they uh, kind of got their start at least in the biofilm gang, they got their start with Problem Child. Let's just get that out of the way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, which they seem to be happy to talk about if you bring it up to them. Uh, <laughs> but they got their start in the biopic genre by writing Ed Wood uh, with uh, Johnny Depp, which is... It's one of my all-time favorite movies. Absolutely. Uh, same here. Uh, and then they, they moved on. They did Man in the Moon with Jim Carrey. Uh, they most recently did uh, My Name is Dolomite with uh, Eddie Murphy, which I think was probably the most underrated movie of last year. Murphy should have gotten an Oscar nomination. That's ridiculous that he didn't. And Autofocus was not written by Scott Alexander and Larry Karajewski, but it felt like one of their movies. And I found out researching it that they actually consulted on it. So they helped the screenwriter of this movie. And that's why their stamp is definitely on it. Uh, But it shows also their influence on the biopic world. Everything, every biopic since those guys started doing them has shown their influence and it's it's i just have to point them out but what a great movie if you ever get a chance paul schrader directed autofocus if you're interested in pop culture if you're interested in television history if you're interested in not unsolved but unjustified crimes i don't know what you would call it exactly it's pretty clear that john carpenter murdered bob crane in what almost seems like a jealousy sort of uh, crime of passion they yeah the crime of passion exactly they were not lovers necessarily but they were definitely partners in crime uh in in the their whole uh, sex addiction thing and he felt betrayed and he killed bob crane and he although they do i they they do sort of paint a picture that there might have been one uh, seems more into it than the other yes yeah that there you know that uh john carpenter might have been a bisexual you know that he might might have actually had some sort of feelings for uh you know i mean mainly what you know the whole thing is that they're both using each other john Carpenter is using Bob Crane's fame and Bob Crane is using, you know, uh, John Carpenter's connections with like to the technology world. Although at that one point that dries up and he uses Bob Crane to get him girls and stuff and they're using each other, but obviously Bob Crane is sort of the one carrying the deal, but it ultimately feels like a movie about a love affair uh, between those two guys. And, and there's definitely, I mean, there's, 
they're doing stuff alone together uh, without yeah. the girls around. It just isn't, it's more of a circle jerk sort of thing than a yeah. uh, full on homosexual experience, but it's, it's alluded yeah. to and well done. Remember, movie. Like, rem- really, remember John Carpenter, John Carpenter did stick his finger up Bob Crane's ass. So this is uh, true. This yeah. Is true. So, but, but, but yeah, uh, I think it's a weird, it's a, it's, it's, it, and again, who knows how much of that is based off of reality, but there's definitely the, the film does portray it as a jilted lover kind of scenario because Bob Crane ends his relationship with with John Carpenter. John Carpenter's like, no, man, I, I, I'm enjoying this. Like, I like this. Let's keep doing this. And so there's a jealousy and there's a sort of, uh, yeah. you know, uh, yeah. And, and, but it's like a great said, movie. And I think it's, it's played to a level where you really feel sorry for John Carpenter, which is interesting because he is the uh, the bad guy here. Yeah. Uh, and and in real life, he was tried and uh, was not convicted. Uh, he was acquitted of the death of Bob. And uh, John Carpenter is no longer with us in this world, probably for the better. But he lived uh, to be a very old and free man. Uh, and it's an interesting part of his life. We are starting to run long. There are two movies that I just am dying to mention. Let's just talk about it. Let's get through it. Let's get through it. I, I don't think that we can <laughs> talk about... Let me take it. There's one that we definitely need to talk about. There's another one. I'm going to leave it up to you if you have any thoughts uh, as Antichrist. I do. I have many thoughts, actually. <laughs> okay, then let's get into Antichrist because I found it to be incredibly powerful. Yeah, absolutely. It, tell me your thoughts on it. Well, first off, I like Lars von Trier films. Even if the, the Lars von Trier film isn't... He's There's not always an easy watch. Lars no, movies are never an easy watch. So this these movies are not for everybody. No, and they're trigger they're, warnings up and down. If you're going to watch a Lars von von Trier movie, his entire career is a trigger warning. Absolutely, and and he, you know, I think his reputation was that like he's some sort of like sadist and some sort of. And I think that really came from Dancer in the Dark and his the you know what came out between him and Bjork and stuff. But he is, for all intents and purposes, though he is a master filmmaker. He, I would say, he is a genius in in, yeah. in of you know in in his way. He started um, his a movement fil- and it stuck. Like most filmmakers that want to start a movement, as presumptuous and as conceited as that is, he managed yeah. to get Dogma ninety five to become a thing. Yeah, and mind you, of the Dogma film. The 95 films his are really the only ones like uh i think people care about at this point or 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 continue to watch but as a filmmaker he you know he's he's made some amazing films he's made some very uh we'll say impactful films and some films that really fucked with with their audience uh i would actually say like i i didn't enjoy nymphomaniac i thought that i i think the nymphomaniac films as where i think he started to become a little self-indulgent but I don't agreed. know. I, I agree. That's why I wanted to talk about Antichrist. If we can only talk about one. Uh, they yeah. are a trilogy though. Uh, yes. I forget what the Melancholia. third one is. Uh, Melancholia. There we go. Yeah. Which um, I like. I do like Melancholia. But and, and uh, to me, honestly, though. Maniac is a two-parter. So I guess you could say it's a yeah. four-part, but it's really a trilogy. Yeah. Because yeah. I think, uh, yeah, Nymphomaniac, I don't think, was originally intended to be a sequel. I think it, he... I mean, if I'm not mistaken, I think it was like he wanted to make or at least like a five hour movie. But uh, <laughs> first off, the performances are both great. Charlotte Gainsbourg, who's a very unique, you know, she's the she's the daughter of Serge Gainsbourg's this uh, very famous and iconic French singer and performer. But you know, she's she's got her own. She's very she looks like the star of a Lars Frontier movie. Uh, <laughs> she reminds me a little bit of. Uh... The woman that starred in uh, The Shape of Water. Like, I can see them playing yeah. sisters. Yes, absolutely. You know, it's it's a hard movie to watch. And it, I mean, the, all of the themes, like the grief and, you know, it's, it's about it's very, like, 
depression it's is... It's about grief. Yes. Uh, let's maybe before we go into like some of the abstractions, I think we should probably tell people this is a movie about a couple that is... At the beginning, you don't know that they're going through troubles. You just see them uh, having very passionate sex while their child yeah. walk, crawls out the uh, high-rise window. Falls out, yeah, falls out of a window and dies. And the Spoiler rest, alert. Yes, and the rest of the movie is is dealing with the grief, especially her grief uh, becomes the focus. Yes. But uh, what starts to flip is he's a therapist. Defoe plays a therapist as the husband, and he insists on taking care of his own wife, even though he fully admits that he's not supposed to. And it really starts to become about how his way of dealing with the grief is oppressing her and her grief is completely bringing him down and how they, they may have actually been able to make something work except for the fact that they're, their two grieving processes were standing in so opposition of each other. And then it gets fucking violent. Yeah. And it's very notorious for the explicit sexual mutilation. The, the very few things make me close my eyes and turn away. And that did it. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a, there's a few sequences (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> in this movie but especially that, uh, that one yes i yes i think we can yeah I, 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 i'm assuming you're talking about the things that happened to willem defoe right not the uh, right? no i actually the I, crunching of the you know i was able to watch that easier than i was e- able to watch her mutilate herself yes okay okay because as i say that's the the hard one for me but i will say the uh ejaculating blood thing was very uh <laughs> i think that wow. just says it all Yes, exactly. Um, but yeah, it, but the thing is, it, unlike, say, Serbian film, where even though, again, I've gone on record as saying I think Serbian film is better made than I think people give it credit for. It's actually a pretty well-made film. It's well-acted, like it's well-written, and it's well-constructed. But, you know, it is a film that sort of relies on the gratuitousness of the violence and the horrific things that happen during the movie. To me, dated to what the characters are going through and what their struggle is, their internal struggle and their struggle between themselves. And again, you know, you know, blaming, uh, you know, there's grief, there's uh, blaming each other for the death of their, there's all these things, very heavy subjects that the movie deals with, but it's, it's well-made and it, you know, the movie looks incredible. The movie look, I mean, just the cinematography of the movie is incredible. Every, there's like, all the these design, like very like, the, the, there's uh, a moment where it's a, the, there's this up? huge, the design of it. There's, there's this moment where there's these yes. big, huge tree roots and Trees. there's hands yep. reaching through the roots and it's just, yep. uh, it's mind-boggling. And of course, you know, everything and that's a, beautiful that, in that movie, they're like, okay, let's go fuck on it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but it's, it's you know, it's, uh, it's very, by the way, also to bring up his uh, prodigious uh, uh, member again. Yes. So yes. Uh, they actually had to give him a stunt cock because they figured, because Willem Dafoe just assumed he was going to show his, his cock and balls. Uh, for excuse my uh, way of putting that, but they thought you know Willem Dafoe was like, yeah, I'm I'm comfortable with nudity, and they're like, no, because nobody's going to believe that's really your penis. <laughs> so they gave him a stunt. <laughs> uh, this is so, why we put um, restricted on the on this podcast. That's right, uh, especially this episode, apparently. But anyways, yeah. but but yeah, it's a, I think it's a much better movie than people actually give it credit for. I think it's known for those factors, but you know, it's again the perform. I mean, Mich- I mean, obviously, Willem Dafoe is great in this, but to me, um, Charlotte Gainsbourg is incredible. It's very much. I, 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 have we talked about Possession? 
um, the movie Possession with yeah, uh, you know what? Uh, Isabella on Johnny and she that yes Gainsborough reminds me of a Johnny. I was actually think while I was watching it, I was actually thinking I need to uh, ask Jim if parts of it reminded him of Possession. Yeah, I mean, you should it, say it. I love Possession. Yes, Let's absolutely. talk about that someday. It's not a Willem Dafoe movie, but God no. damn, what a great movie. <laughs> no, but God damn, dude, Sam Neill. When Sam Neill does horror, motherfucker nails it. Um, yeah. uh, but that movie's incredible. We can talk about Possession all day long. But yeah, it's, but it's such a movie about performance um, because really it's about, you know, these two human beings, like, and what they do to each other emotionally and everything and, um, and physically. But yeah, it's a great movie. I think it, I, I think it gets, no, I will say as somebody who's seen, you know, uh, uh, Salo and seen, you know, like I, I can stomach horrific things happening on screen. It is hard to watch. It's very hard yeah. to watch. And um, I'm in that not exact just, same camp. It's yeah. It's almost it almost works against it in a way. Although here we are talking about it and how beautifully it's done, yeah. but it really is a movie about the emotional turmoil that's going on, and these things are are horrible physical manifestations of the horrible emotional things that these two parents are are going through. And we, I think, it does a slight disservice to itself because we are, even as film historians ourselves, talking more about the physical violence than we are about. But the, the film emotion, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But Absolutely. I don't know how much of that was by design, but it, it's just a fact about the movie. It's just the way it's. And be. I mean, I put. I would definitely say Lars von Trier. That might, knowing his his modus operandi. I, I mean, it might, maybe it was intentional. I don't know. He's yeah, a very, very well could be. But yeah, I think it's a great movie. And I think more people actually need to see it. I agree, but yeah. with the caveat that it's not for everybody. Yeah. This is not, uh, yeah, I, I'm willing to say that this is an amazing movie to about 20% of you. And yes. uh, everyone else is going to find it to be just too hard of a watch. Just to, to move on as quickly as I can, there are a couple of performances here just to, to mention. You mentioned The Florida Project. That's uh, Defoe at his most normal, and it's uh, just lovely. Mm-hmm. And not that the movie is lovely about positive things per se, but it his character is... is no. <laughs> his character is the sunshiny character uh eh, i'm gonna take that back that's maybe not the best way to put it but he is the most normal person Mm -hmm. uh everyone else is so florida that it hurts and uh really does give a uh yes an in-depth look at the life of uh, a lot of people that uh not just in florida but i would imagine particularly in florida and areas like here around disneyland people live in these hotels that used to be kind of tourist traps and are now just these uh, dilapidated sort of almost assisted living places. Defoe is uh, manages the hotel and has to deal with these. I'm just going to be honest with it. These shitty little kids uh, that are just doing bad things. <laughs> the whole movie. They're, they're adorable as well, but God, they, these kids are out of line and he's the one that. Well, and again, because they, they're, they have a very weak. Yeah. I mean, their situation mother. isn't the best. Yes. Yes. Uh, but anyways, the, the Florida project people should see, uh, you mentioned Pasolini by, uh, Abel Ferreira, uh, also a very good movie, but really more like if you're not already a Pasolini fan, I, I find it hard to think you're going to take anything away from it. It's about his final days, uh, when he was working on solo, which is another movie much like Antichrist that is uh, well known for being really brutal. And uh, Pasolini ended up dying violently himself. And so this is about his final days. And I think paints like a pretty good portrait of him during that time. But I don't feel like I know more about his own story. It's like literally about this last five or so days. He also did At Eternity's Gate for Julian Schnabel. Which which, I've, yeah. Dude, his his Vincent Van Gogh, he's... (laughs) 
first off, Defoe is a good like 25 years older than Van Gogh was when he died. But he nails it. He makes you, he brings such a level of of sympathy to, to this artist. Everyone knows the Van Gogh story. Everyone knows cutting off the ear and all of this. People don't necessarily know the whys. We get the, the wrong idea that he yeah. urban legend almost like, oh, he loved this woman so much that he cut off his ear for her. Yeah. The actual reason isn't any less crazy, but it was not for this girl. It was for another artist friend of his who he felt was leaving him stranded when he left town. And he gave it to the girl to give to this artist friend of his played by uh, Oscar Isaac. Uh, also very good. But Defoe, just on his face... My God, I I am a bigger Vince Van Gogh fan because of of this movie. And I was a fan already. Starry Night is one of my favorite things ever put on the canvas. But he he brings a humanity to it that is expected, but still manages to overachieve in in bringing this humanity. And Kirk Douglas also very famously played the same character and nailed it for his time. But this just smokes... Kirk Douglas out of the water. It, it will give you a, a whole new appreciation of what being an artist is. And I actually walked away with, you know, there's the, uh, the old, it's not a myth, but it's, it's kind of a, when people say an artist doesn't really become big until they die, mm-hmm. that very much happened to Vincent Van Gogh. Am I pronouncing it right? By the way, I never know if I'm pronouncing it correctly. They say it's Vince Van Gogh with a with a soft H at the end. But that's the Dutch I pronunciation. Mean, I, he was he was Dutch but yeah. living in France. And but anyways, I forget what I was going with. That. <laughs> <laughs> Suffice uh, to say, yeah, he does a. I mean, he he, he does a good job. Is what you're saying? It, that's essentially what I'm saying. And uh, people should check out that movie as well. But and Julia Schnabel's also like you know as first off you know as an actual painter and artist this himself uh you know he had a unique take on it but he's also a great filmmaker uh, diving bell and the butterfly i happen to be a big fan of basquiat i love the performances in basquiat um david bowie is andy warhol is just too perfect um yeah, but uh agreed but yeah it's it i'm a big fan of all of his films. i haven't seen his that film he did like the pound sign horror like cash egg or whatever i haven't seen that one I but i've seen, seen all either. of his other films but night before night falls and stuff so i I'm, i am a fan of julian schnabel so i've wanted to see it and i Again, visually, the only thing I know is the trailer and some things I've seen, but visually the movie looked amazing. So. Well, yeah. Uh, oftentimes the cinematography is trying to capture what Vincent van Gogh was seeing he in sees. nature. And there were arguments between him and, and uh, Oscar Isaacs. So they're arguing over like, well, do you paint what's in your mind or do you paint what you're seeing? Because isn't that just a copy? And uh, Defoe is arguing like, yes, it's a copy, but it's my interpretation of the copy. It's not what I'm actually seeing. It's my feelings about what I'm seeing. If you're an artist, it has some really great sort of uh, artist back and forth and, and uh, art analysis, let's say. And all of the paintings that are meant to look like uh, the real Vincent Van Gogh were actually done by Julian Schnabel and Willem Dafoe. So some of the... Oh, I didn't know Willem Dafoe did them too. Yes. Some of the self-portraits of uh, Van Gogh, which he's very famous for, were repainted in this movie to look more like Dafoe. And yeah, I knew that. And I knew Schnabel. I, I think I just assumed Schnabel would do them, but no, they did them together. And you can see, like, it's very clear that uh, Defoe is painting on screen as well, and and coming That's up good. with because uh, that yeah. always bugs the shit out. As an artist and as a, a painter myself, it, it bugs the shit out of me when I see fake painting or drawing in films. It's the artistic version of lip syncing. Let's let's get yes. with it, people. Let's let's uh, at least teach your actors well enough how to do a couple of strokes on the on the uh, canvas so it looks like they know what they're doing. Now, before we. Turn this into a two-parter. 
I can't leave without talking about The Lighthouse because that is one of my new favorite things ever. I'm assuming you saw The Lighthouse. I think of I course. talked about it on another podcast. Yeah. It's funny because, you know, it's I don't think I like it as much as The Witch, even though it takes way more chances creatively than The Witch. But I do think it's a strong film. And I do think, even though it's not, it's it take it's a loose interpretation of a story by uh, Poe. It feels more like there's been a ton of adaptations and, and great adaptations. You know the Corman Poe films, but there's to me that movie, movies, but not great adaptations. Exactly, exactly what I was going. You nailed it. So this movie, while not being a very literal translation of Poe's work, slightly based off of one of his stories, it feels like Poe. It feels like the madness of Poe. I mean, both great performances, but I will say as great as, but yeah, so people always want to shit on Robert Pattinson because he was in the Twilight films, but he is a great actor, and I think he's really good in this, but dude, I have been, Poe. I have really enjoyed Robert Pattinson's whole process of making me a douchebag because of all the bad things I said about Twilight. <laughs> <laughs> For real, proved though. himself to be so incredible. Especially yeah, and he, he again, the, the, the storytelling, the way it's filmed, the sort of weird... I, I, again, the, I, I hate to use the same sort of tired cliches, but the movie is very, sometimes it's very dreamlike, sometimes it's very night, nightmarish, but it, it, and again, it's part of the story. You don't get a sense of time everything is sort of melding in with each other. You know, one thing I really liked about it is farting, they're gross, like they're petty, like, but yeah, it's a, it's, it's a very interesting movie. I, I think it's a good movie. I, like I said, I, I did enjoy it. I would definitely say it's for a particular audience. So yeah, it's not for everybody, but you know, it's it's a very it's a really interesting movie, and I think, like I said, I think he's a great filmmaker. Everybody talks about Ari Aster, briefly so too, because Ari Aster is making good films, and I, I hate when people shit all over. I forget there's a name for this new sort of era of horror, you know, good filmmaking. I, I just made this this comment to there's this um, guy named Nathan Thomas Milner, and he's a very successful illustrator for, for like uh, you know he does a lot of like movie posters and DVD covers and stuff like that but you know because there's a guy talking about how he's like oh i really loved your list of best horror movies of you know the last 10 years except for uh hereditary or whichever one he put on there and i was like dude this is like if if i'm sorry i'm getting off on a tangent but I'll, I'll come back to my point i promise but i was like you know if if a movie like hereditary or or i'll even say the witch actually you know I might have actually been the witch. I'm actually might be wrong. Maybe I'm actually putting this in Ari Aster and it wasn't. But I was like, if that if a movie like The Witch or even say Hereditary or uh, Midsummer had come out in the '70s, it would have just been a movie and a movie you probably admit that you like. But because it came out in the 2000s and the 2020s, now you think it's pretentious. But you know, is it any more pretentious than you know a movie like Rosemary's Baby or you know no, or this, Wicker Man? Not to yeah, Wicker Man clearly influenced Midsummer. Uh, th- these are, yeah. they're not particularly, Lighthouse, I would say, actually is pretty intellectual. The other ones, yes, they, they just take their time to develop their character and their story. And that is something that modern audiences don't seem to be in tune with. But you're absolutely right. They're movies where the very things that they're criticizing them for are the very things they would have loved about them had they come out 30 or 40 years ago. Absolutely. And, 100%. Not because culture has changed in a positive direction in this way. Uh, These are the movies that 20, 30 years from now, people are going to still be talking about. And you're going to say, I didn't get it at the time. But then people are going to be smacking you and saying, how could you not get this? These are clearly the good horror movies 
and you wasted your time going to see Fantasy Island. But <laughs> what I love about The Lighthouse, I really felt, speaking of pretentious, this is going to sound pretentious, but it's it's the kind of movie that makes me want to make movies. Not that this is necessarily my audience or my style, but I got so excited by the style. And mm-hmm. discovering that, uh, what's his name? Robert Eggers, I believe, is, is the name of the director. Correct. Yeah. And... What he did, the movie takes place in the uh, late 19th century. I think it's like actually 1890. And he used uh, old cameras. This wasn't shot digitally. It was shot on film. And he used some older cameras. But what made it really work was that he used lenses that dated back to like the 1890s. I think the, old, I think the most contemporary lens he used to shoot on in this movie was 1936. That's uh, so crazy. I didn't know that. Yeah, so it has a very real authenticity to the way it looks it looks like old film and he used filters as well to capture the way that film was processed at the time which was particularly difficult uh in black and white on the color red uh which means that reds come out very dark and since all of us white people have a good amount of red actually in our faces uh it made their their faces intensely dark and shadowy. And it's this attention to that particular detail that really sold it to me. Uh, as absurd as the rest of the movie gets, I mean, the shit with the seagull is insane. The, yeah. per, the Prometheus ending, uh, which yep. it's only a spoiler alert if you know Prometheus. Uh, <laughs> the, the mythology, not the Ridley Scott. And Yes. <laughs> but, Good point. Uh, I wouldn't even thought of that. <laughs> uh, but... Uh, Defoe in this film as like kind of this salty old sea dog uh, who's been running this lighthouse for way too long. His performance, <laughs> I, I wish, I, I can't remember even who won the Oscar last year. Uh, I can't remember if they, if it was a situation where they robbed someone else or what, but there should have been a special Oscar made just for Willem Defoe's performance in this. Uh, the scene where he gives, he throws down a sailor's sea curse on Robert Pattinson's character because Robert Pattinson refuses to agree that he cooks a good lobster. Uh, Cause this is how insane <laughs> these guys are going, but he go, he stands up and they give him definitely like the hero shot where it's down below looking up at him and his face is very deeply shadowed. And he has this grand beard that just is in black and white, somehow still full of color and this look on his face. And he gives this three minute long incantation and he doesn't blink his eyes even once. Uh, in one take and just that scene alone it deserves its own award much more than say antichrist which i would recommend like i said to maybe 20 percent of our audience i think lighthouse is actually the type of movie that should be seen by more people including people who wouldn't maybe ordinarily like this kind of movie because it's a good gateway movie for those types of people to really understand what this kind of a movie can be you might hate it but you'll have been kind of rewarded for having seen it. And uh, if, if you're movie curious, this might turn out to be just the kind of thing that's up your alley. So I do give this a full recommendation. If you don't like it, that's on you. But Well, that's the thing. I will say the one thing is that, and not to get too pretentious with this, but to me, it's a true film. Like there are movies which are made with the input of, you know, studios and test audiences. And I'm, that's, I'm not, that's not a criticism either. I mean, no, some of the entertainment best movies is great. are made that way. Absolutely. But you can tell this is definitely a film that was the, uh, the vision and the product of, an, of a singular sort of artist and, and, you know, an auteur or whatever. Um, but you can tell this was a movie he really wanted to make and was passionate about and had a very specific vision. And 
again, he's a fantastic filmmaker. I think I was just saying this, uh, I, on a, uh, you know, recently. Uh, he's uh, he's somebody I'm always I'm always excited. If I hear he's got something new, I'm I I check his IMDb page pretty regularly just to see if there's anything new he's working on. I feel the same way about Ari Aster, and again, I know people. He's very polarizing to me. Like I said, it, as popular as Hereditary and Midsummer were, I still think The Witch and and The Lighthouse weren't as widespread that people I know more people that saw Hereditary than saw The Witch uh, I know a lot of people hate The Witch but those people can all kiss my ass I think well, the out of all four of those I think Hereditary incredible. becomes Hereditary is kind of naturally the most approachable as a, yes absolutely as a non-film connoisseur uh, yes agreed 100% but if you think you might secretly be a snob like us Lighthouse <laughs> is definitely the movie to watch this Halloween uh, he's great little black and white you know little uh, it's like psychological horror is the way I would. Yes, uh, two two people, one location. Uh, most of the weather in the movie was real. Almost everybody stayed in a local hotel, including Pattinson. But Defoe actually stayed in the uh, little fisherman's house next to the lighthouse, which I love. Uh, of course, don't know, don't know how necessary it was, but if that's <laughs> hey, that's the way that Willem Defoe works. That's a perfect thing. As we close out here, uh, I mean, it's also worth pointing out: a dude was in Murder on the Orient Express. The dude he was in Aquaman. Defoe still continues to be in big movies. He was in Motherless Brooklyn, which I really, really enjoyed. I don't know if anybody else saw that. I'm a lover of film noir, and this is about as close as anyone's gotten to doing a straight film noir since, say, L.A. Confidential, in terms of actually doing it as a period piece. So that that was uh, directed by Edward Norton. Fine film. I want. I wanted to see it. Uh, I'm a huge Edward Norton fan, despite you know uh, some of his public persona as far as him as an pain in the ass uh, actor or director. But it looked phenomenal. But I just I hadn't gotten around to seeing it. I actually until you said that, I, mean, I wanted I've been wanting to see it. Like I said, you know Edward Norton. He plays like sort of like a uh, does he have like a mental disorder or like what is the, the he has he has Tourette syndrome. Tourette's, thank you. I knew it was something like that. But it looked really good. Uh, again, I'm always interested to see a, like a neo-noir, new noir. But I didn't even, I, until you just said that, I forgot uh, Willem Dafoe was even in it. It's one movie I've been wanting to check out. It's on I, HBO Max now. Well, I have HBO Max, so let's do it. Definitely. <laughs> yeah, check out Motherless Brooklyn. Add that to uh, Dog Eat Dog and text me when it's done because I want somebody to talk to you about that movie. Uh, Sounds good. I, I loved Motherless Brooklyn. I'm not going to deep dive on it because we're coming so close to the end and Defoe really doesn't play anything uh, reaching the biggest role in that movie. And Edward Norton probably should have been Oscar nominated because I've never seen uh, a Tourette's performance. I, I'm not even sure I've seen a Tourette's performance. I can't think of any other act. I'm sure it's, I'm gonna say, I'm sure it's happened. I'm sure it's out there. Just comedically, just comedically, but, just comedically. Yeah, I guarantee exactly. you never in a, yeah. But, yeah, that reminds me, actually, it was a really horrible representation of Tourette's Syndrome in the Boondock Saints with the uh, yes, bartender right. that keeps on saying ass fuck for some reason. But <laughs> because that's apparently what people think Tourette's is. It's not just dirty words. It's uh, obsessive compulsive. It's, it's physical tics. It's verbal tics. Uh, in this, he keeps on saying if through the whole movie. He's just if, if. And people want him to finish the sit the sentence. And uh, there's a scene where he's lighting a woman's cigarette because this is the 1950s. Every time he lights the match and holds it to her cigarette, he blows it out, and she thinks that he's having a, a gag on her. Uh, but it, he's trying to explain to to many people in this movie. I'm sorry, I have this condition. I can't help it. He's even telling the villain at one point, played by uh, with sinister 
sort of, uh, well, natural Trumpism by Alec Baldwin. <laughs> and uh, he even has to tell, he apologizes to the villain in the movie saying, I'm sorry, I can't help it. Uh, it's, so it's kind of interesting to see the, the way that he has to cope with the world and the world copes with him. And most people in the movie seem to be pretty understanding, although he does amongst his quote-unquote friends have the nickname Freak Show and he hates it. But uh, yeah, that's a good movie. People should check that out. And to just kind of give a shout out to the things that are coming up, if you look at uh, Willem Dafoe's IMDb page, if you think that the world was slowing down because of COVID, uh, nobody asked Willem Dafoe. Uh, He's got uh, (laughs) two more movies with Abel Ferrara. The French Dispatch for Wes Anderson, which we probably should have mentioned his stuff with Wes Anderson, his part in Life Aquatic. Oh, absolutely. In fact, go for it if you want to. Yeah, I mean, you know, his character in Life Aquatic is sort of the, in a a movie full of scene stealers, I mean, how do you steal scene when Bill Murray's involved? But I remember coming out of the thing and I remember exactly. And I remember coming out of that movie and everybody was talking about Willem Dafoe and how great he was. Because you don't naturally associate Willem Dafoe with comedy, even though he's done com- comedic kind of performances. But uh, he's great in it. He's always great. And I, it's a weird, you know, because he, he didn't work with him until Life Aquatic. So he had already, Wes Anderson had sort of already made some big pictures. But ever as soon as he was part of the Wes Anderson crew, you're like, well, yeah, that makes total sense. Yeah. Like, of course he was going <laughs> to do it. So, and I guess what Wes Anderson was actually a big Willem Dafoe fan. But yeah. But yeah, he's, his stuff with, with Wes Anderson's great, uh, uh, specifically Life Aquatic. I love his. Uh, but he's now in The French Dispatch by Wes Anderson, yeah. which is coming soon. He's going to be in Nightmare Alley with Guillermo del Toro, who I don't believe he's ever worked with before, but seems like a perfect match again. Uh, yeah, exactly. He's He's got a post-production. He's got a movie called The Card Counter by Paul Schrader. So he's back with Schrader. And then uh, Robert Eggers, the director of The Lighthouse, has him Lighthouse. Uh, in a movie right now called The North. Yep. Which so, looks pretty dope too. So I'm very excited. So yes, uh, Willem Dafoe. Thank you, William Dafoe, for being such an exception to the rule. Every time I do one of these podcasts, I inevitably say, how come nobody makes this kind of movie anymore? And just smack me next time and say, Willem Dafoe makes this kind of movie still. He's at once a throwback and the future of acting at the same time. Uh, any final words yeah. on? Yeah, I was just going to say, I think it speaks volume to his talent and his legacy that he continues to still not only just work and be in demand, but continues to turn out performances like the Florida Project or the Lighthouse, where he's well, well into uh, his film career and he's still doing vital roles, like vital work, really important stuff. So a uh, big fan, always will be a big fan. And uh, yeah, this was uh, this was a very long, but very uh, fun podcast. <laughs> yes, uh, thanks for bearing with us. Uh, I think this is a better solution than making this two parts on one. Willem Dafoe. Uh, next time, maybe we'll uh, pick a Halloweeny kind of topic that we can talk about in a little bit of a shorter fashion. But I have fun. I hope our audience has fun. We might have a special guest next week. So uh, come and check us out for that. I, I hope we have a special guest. I think next we week. might. I, we've, we've talked to him, but we haven't scheduled anything yet. But I've already started to watch some movies by this filmmaker uh, just to brush up on the very few that I would ever need to brush up on because the rest of his work I'm very familiar with already. But uh, if you want to keep up with us, make sure you're checking us out on Facebook and Twitter. I have tried to do my best to be more prolific and it seems to be working. We are finally having a couple of posts that are taking off. In fact, we had, I think, over 300 likes on a post that I put up of Canon movies playing at an old grindhouse in Times Square. 
So, and I do want to say, you know, um, if you are on our social media and you're reaching out, if we haven't responded to any of your messages, private messages or things, just it's been a busy week, but we're both going to start being more engaged in our social media. We appreciate all of the feedback, all of the messages, especially people seem to be enjoying what we're doing and, and, and also sharing their own memories and their own opinions, which is what I love. I love the discourse about film. So keep That's that up and part. we promise we'll, we promise we'll be, uh, we'll be even more involved than we are. So yeah, make sure to look us up. Uh, Den of Sin. You know what? I'm going to officially may, maybe make this the last time I spell it for people. People should start to get it by now. <laughs> Den of Sin is C-I-N as in cinema. Um, whoever thought of that name? Jesus Christ. Uh, <laughs> 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 oh, wait. I think it was me. Uh, I, I, still, I think people get it. I still in fact, like if they're listening to this, they must have found it. So Right. Uh, but yeah, make sure you like us on Facebook and uh, follow us on Twitter. And um, you can hear us, uh, new episodes and old episodes on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts. We're now on Amazon and uh, we're also on YouTube. So just about anywhere you'd like to listen, you can find us. We also have our original homepage on buzzsprout.com. I don't know if it's good to our actual page. We are working on getting a actual operating website uh, that is completely our own domain. At that point, we'll set up an email address and start to get some real comments and start to direct you that way. But uh, if you can shoot us some suggestions as to what you'd like to see there, uh, would you like to see show notes, uh, links to where you can find these movies we discuss, or... Uh, I, hell, I, if, if people are up for it, I'm sure James and I would even be interested in uh, blogging and putting up some other artwork that's inspired by some of these films that we talked about. Uh, Absolutely. So let us know what you want to find in that. And uh, until next time, be safe. And uh, <laughs> under the current climate, stay sane. That's right. And watch a Willem Dafoe movie. Yes. Watch a couple of them. Yeah. <laughs> Have a good night, James. Later, Devin. Always a pleasure. Always. Always.